This episode is brought to you by Zeratech Software Development. Are you a company whose commitment to excellence demands effective software tools? Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help build or enhance your technological systems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. You can find them at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Hey guys, today I sat down and talked to John Kramer. John is a pilot. Uh, he flew commercially for many years. He flew up in Alaska uh, on bush planes, bringing hunters and, and stuff out to different areas. Uh, flew along the Iditarod following the sled dogs up in Alaska. Uh, he's been on a lot of different cool adventures. Uh, floated the Yukon River like 2,000 miles on a, on a small little boat. He, he rode the Mackenzie River up in northern Canada about 1,000 miles and just been on a lot of cool adventures that it was really fun to hear about. Uh, he was in the Marines. Uh, and so, yeah, this, this is one that I really enjoyed. I hope you guys do as well. Welcome to the Obsessed Podcast. I'm your host, Logan Herkus. In this podcast, we get to meet and hear from folks who are obsessed with a wide array of interesting endeavors. We dive into some awesome stories and look at the mindsets and the psychology of those who are obsessed. Let's go. The Mackenzie, let's, like you said, let's chat about that. Uh, you came in, you started up, where was it again here? The Yellowknife. Okay. And where is Yellowknife? It's on Great Slave Lake right over there so uh you can move it around there if you want to okay with your with your fingers there oh yeah i got you right here yellow knife yeah so you floated that what what inspired that trip initially you were just looking for adventures okay um and eventually whether it's now or later i want to hear about some of your flying up in alaska that'd be fun to hear about but was that the the float here on mackenzie before you started flying up in alaska or after or during during. i was always doing adventures okay uh you know it was just something we picked. We wanted to try a different river because we'd floated the entire length of the Yukon River. Yeah. And, uh, and so now we wanted to try something different. So uh, should I just keep going? Yeah, or, we're okay. good. We're rolling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a friend of mine in New Mexico and myself, we decided, uh, the three of us, my cousin also, uh, to uh, float the Mackenzie River. Mm-hmm. And it was about a thousand mile trip. Uh just round numbers, I don't know exactly, and I think that's just the length of the river, not including going across uh, Great Slave Lake. Uh, and so, uh, Sean and myself were going to drive all the way from New Mexico, where I was living at the time, all the way up to Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was a several day trip. I can't even tell you if anymore if it was three days or four days of driving. I think it was had to be four days because the distances are so vast. Right. So we left out of, out of New Mexico. We got uh, our three uh, boats, the 11-foot Seagull uh, little Zodiac-style boats with uh, 9.9 Mercury kickers we had purchased, and we'd used them on, on a few trips now. And uh, the intention was to uh, not bring our boats back from this trip because it was going to be so costly to bring them back, so we are going to give them away or sell them when we got to the Arctic Ocean up there. So we're driving, and after driving for a couple days, you know, uh, um, we're well up into Canada now, and we get to Amonic on this drive. And the interesting part about Amonic, uh, we get to Edmonton. Uh, it's on the highway over here someplace. Sure. Looking at your map, 
and we, we get to uh, the, the town here, and after several days of driving, my friend who had planned the drive looks at me and he says, uh, uh, you know, John, you know, we've been driving for several days, and we're in the town of... Uh, uh, Let's see here. Yeah, looking at the map, and uh, he says, you know, we still have a 1,000 miles of driving to do. Yeah. And I was just so shocked that... <laughs> You know, <laughs> and I was used to distances, but I hadn't done anything about the drive. Yeah. So if you look over here on the map. Here's Edmonton here. Yep. Yeah. From Edmonton on, it's still a thousand miles all up the way the... up to Yellowknife. Yeah. So we get to, uh, we cross the Mackenzie on the way there at uh, Fort Providence. Yeah. And uh, driving uh, this last distance to uh, Yellowknife, there it's, they got um, buffalo, bison huh. that are in this uh Canadian National Park. And uh, during the last part, they would frequently be in the middle of the road. And a big old, you know, bison is bigger than a uh, typical beef cow. Right. I mean, they're huge. And they just sit there with their horns in the middle of the road and they defy you to, (laughs) you know, continue driving. And several times we had, uh, you know, traffic was blocked, which meant that there was like three cars there. Because there's like nobody on these highways. Right. It's like uh, the, the uh, tourist season in you in the Keweenaw. You know, you're in the height of the of the uh, tourist season here, and you look, you pull out on on uh, 41, and you look to the left, and there's no traffic. You look to the right, and there's one car coming. That's the height of the traffic's. You know, the right. tourist season up here, <laughs> and uh, it's even more sparse on the way to Yellowknife. Good roads though, and uh, so we get into Yellowknife, and uh, one of the first experiences we had was we picked up. Uh, we, we unloaded all our our boats. We had to inflate them and uh, put floorboards in them and and the various things to get the motors ready uh, to operate. And uh, the mosquitoes and black flies were just horrendously thick. And uh, even with insect repellent on, you couldn't keep these things off you. And you're and uh, I learned there for the first time. I don't know why this was the first time because you think I'd you'd know that dragonflies yeah. eat black flies, <laughs> and uh, as these dragonflies would swoop in to save me from all these the horde of black flies that were biting on me, they're trying to, you could hear a little crunching noise as this dragonfly would grab a hold of a black fly and go crunch, huh. and you could see its little wings fall away on the black fly, and uh, they would go to the next one, and it would eat about one black fly every second or two. And it just they, a pair of these dragonflies were operating around my head, eating all these things. I got to love dragonflies. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. So previously you had done the Yukon, right? Yes. You had said. Yeah, so was, this was your second long trip like this. And Yukon's yeah. roughly 2,000 miles, which we might yep. get into. And this one is roughly 1,000 yeah, miles. But, yeah. But what's numbers. the, just the adventure? That's what it is yep. above everything else. That's we, what it's for is the adventure. We yeah. were just trying to see new country and, and uh, do things that uh, uh, others didn't do very often. Yeah. And it was yeah. just for the fun of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, you were living in New Mexico, though, at, at the time. time. Yes. Okay. And same thing, were you down there for adventure, too? Because you're, you're from Michigan originally. I'm yeah. just curious how you ended up out west. I think about the west all the time. I go out there as much as I can. Uh, so I'm curious what, how you ended up there and what yeah, that for was a, like. For a young man growing up in Michigan, the the West was always a big draw. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you heard all the stories about the mountains and the skiing and the elk hunting and uh, all the things that, you know, mule deer hunting and all the things that you can do out there. So uh, 
at the time I was an airline pilot and uh, I was based in Phoenix and my wife and I didn't want to live in Phoenix. We really wanted to live someplace a little, little more comfortable and New Mexico was a big draw because it's, there was snow in the wintertime and yet the summers were pleasant and uh, um, there was a little school for my daughter to go to right, right near where we settled in Cedar Crest, New Mexico. And uh, it was just a really nice place to live, we thought. Yeah, right. So we lived there for 30 years or more. Yeah. But t- can I take you further back even? Yeah, I want to I want to get to the McKenzie trip and I want to get to the, even again, back to the Yukon and flying in Alaska and whatever else, which, but that adventure lifestyle, have you been that way since you were really young or where did that start? Yeah, it was, uh, so uh, um, I'm very, uh lucky or fortunate to have achieved uh, my 68 years of of life yeah. uh, at this point uh, because uh, I was out of control most of my life. There was, uh, I started off, uh, you know, being a young man growing up uh, in uh, uh, Washington, Michigan, uh, and suddenly it was uh, time to uh, go to college or work in a trade and uh, that was the last year of the Vietnam draft and I was uh, turning 18 and I was watching the the in those days to, to get selected for the draft they had a bunch of ping pong balls with everybody's birth date on it you know or all the all the dates of the year and as these ping pong balls were selected you would know if you were number one or two or three or well, I ended up being, uh, my birth date was approximately, I think, 33. It might have been 30, the 30th one. And everybody with a number lower than 50 was going to get drafted. You mm. just knew that. Mm-hmm. So the Vietnam War was uh, winding down. But, uh, you know, you suddenly realize that you're going to get drafted. And uh, you're going, is that something I really want to do? I was never one to shirk my responsibilities as, a, as an American citizen, but... I didn't want to run over to Vietnam and run around those, the, the jungles over there mm-hmm. with a rifle in my hand if I could do something different. Right. So I go, well, I'm going to go to college. Yeah. And uh, um, so it was late in the year now. This was like November. And everybody else had selected their colleges that they were going to go to. Uh, in those days, you got a draft deferment for going to college because hopefully you're going to become now an officer in the service or do something different that could serve your country and you weren't, uh, and I wanted to do something different. Mm-hmm. So, uh, um, and I had my eyes on, uh, some kind of flight school. So, um, being in November, it was, it was too late to, to pick a school for most people, but I was able to get into Michigan tech here. And, uh, when I went into the counselor at the high school, I, I, I said, well, I'm, looks like I'm going to college. Uh, you know, what should I study? And he said, what do you like to do? Hmm. Well, I like to hunt and fish. And he goes, well, what about the forestry department? You know, a degree in forestry. I go, well, what do they do? And uh, they run around the woods and they hunt fish on their days off. Right. Okay. So, uh, (laughs) and uh, what school would you like to go to? Well, um, I don't know what what schools have a forestry department. Well, there's about three in the the state because I had to do state in state tuition, you know, for the cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, he goes, uh, well, there's, there's uh, Michigan State's got a forestry department, I think, if I remember right. Yeah. It's, you know, Eastern or Western or, 
and the Michigan Tech. I said, well, where's Michigan Tech at? Well, it's way up there in northern Michigan. Well, I said, that's got some appeal. That looks like it's the farthest way I can get from Detroit and yeah. still be within state tuition. So right. sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I came up here. Okay. So, wasn't a lot of planning and forethought. Yeah. And uh, so I came up here and I got in the uh, ROTC uh, and then found out that there was a, well, they had me down in, in Milwaukee for the draft physical. So about 50 of us unlucky students got on buses and we were shipped down to Milwaukee and did our, our draft physicals down there. And I came out from that completely disgusted with the whole process because you're running around your underwear with a clipboard that they give you to carry around from department, from stage to stage to stage as they look in every orifice that you've got. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and you're lined up with all these people and the people I was with, you know, were off from all walks of life and mm-hmm. I couldn't identify with most of them. Sure. And, uh, uh, and so then, um, I walked out, there's a Marine recruiter office right there next to the Navy, but the, the Marine Corps recruiter had a picture of a guy standing in front of an F4 Phantom with his helmet in his hand and his flight suit on. And I go, how do I do that? Yeah. And, uh, Walked in, he said, well, an officer, selection officer will be in contact with you at your school sometime soon. So anyway. Yeah. And did that happen? Did you oh, yeah. join the service? Okay. Yeah. Well, in those days, it, was, uh, it wasn't very popular to be in the service. People would yell at you and spit at you and all kinds of stuff for yeah. being in the service. And uh, so he, the officer, selection officer came up to the college a month later or so, and I didn't go see him. Okay. He was at the student union and... You know, it was too embarrassing to walk up to a uh, recruiter in the at the uh, student union. And so he came back a couple months later, and finally he called me up, and I walked sheepishly up to him and signed up for the program. And hmm. so I was, a, I was a poor college student. They offer you $100 a month to sign up for this thing. So I signed up for my $100 a month and was obligated then. So, but you said you, yeah, you walked sheepishly up to the guy, joined the service. Yep. What was that progression like? You, you, did you leave school then to go to, into the military or did you uh, finish school? Then no, they had the, the, the program involved, uh, going to, uh, Marine Corps boot camp two summers for six weeks each summer during college. And, uh, um, and the whole idea in the Marines at the time was you became an infantry officer first, or you were an infantry officer first. And uh, then you could be selected for flight school. Uh, you went to infantry officers. So once you graduated from college, you got a commission uh, as a second lieutenant in the United States Marine Corps. But uh, you went. Your first thing was that you went for six months in infantry officer school. Okay. And then if you were on a, a flight contract, which I was, then after that you go to Pensacola and for Navy flight school. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, and then, but timelines, I'm just thinking again, put it, put it in my head. You were summers while you're going to Michigan tech. And yep. then afterwards you did the six month program and then you went to flight school. Yep. Okay. What was the flight school like down in Pensacola? Well, um, it was very challenging. There was, I think 112 of us, uh, in my class. So there was approximately 200 of us in, in infantry officer school at the basic school uh, that they call it. And then there was about 112 of us that went on to um, flight school. Well, at the end of the day, uh, approximately 12 or 13 of us uh, passed flight school. Hmm. The rest of them returned 
to either infantry or artillery or communications or some other uh, uh, part of the uh, Marine Corps. And the 12 or so of us that continued on, um, most of them went into helicopters and just a few of us ended up in a flight school um, for either multi-engine, one or two guys went into that and there was just a handful of us that went on to fly jets. Right, right. So uh, I want to hear about that, but even jumping around, you said at the time it was a, a, a not a highly sought after thing is to go in the military because of how people treated oh, yeah. the military members. Yeah. It's crazy to think yeah. about. I just talked to a gentleman, John French, who helps out with the Wounded Warrior Foundation. Uh-huh. And uh, he said that part of that, they, they one of the events that they're going to is they have a parade and they take these Vietnam vets and, and people are out there waving flags saying, thank you for your service, whatever else. And he said, some of these guys never had that. And they're, I mean, they're bawling in the car because they never had that. How about, I just can't even comprehend my whole life. It's always been like, thank you for your service. Appreciate it. I can't even imagine a world that's opposite of that, but that's how it was. Hey. Yeah. That's yeah. how it was. I mean, if you look at all, so uh, in, in keeping with our uh, history here, you know, you have world war one, everybody came back as a hero. If you came back right. and same with world war two, uh, the, the Korean war, uh, you know, once again, it was very challenging times and, uh, if you were lucky enough to come back alive or intact from that, you were a hero. And then the Vietnam War, where you were actually uh, very despised for having participated. Yeah. And it was a draft, uh, you know, at least in the later stages of the war. Uh, people didn't have a choice whether they're going to go or not. Right. Or you could go into Canada. And a lot of people ran off to Canada. There's mm-hmm. whole towns in the uh, southern part of Canada that are populated by people that ran away from from uh, the selective service system mm-hmm. and one of our presidents i guess uh um exonerated them at some point here 20 years ago or so sure i can't remember exactly what happened yeah uh but um yes it was a very it was a tough time so when you think about today's uh, tough times that we have where you know people are confused about all kinds of things that we used to take f- for granted uh, uh you know um, there's always been challenges. Yeah. But just think about the, that kid, the young kid, like you said, that's drafted into the service, or even if they went there by choice, you're, you're serving a higher calling, a duty to protect your country, whatever else. Right. And you're going out and you're going, seeing unbelievable things to come back and be treated with, uh, contempt would be hard to handle. Yeah. 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 It would. It, yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, I came back, uh, with, you know, you get your head shaved in those days. Yeah. And, uh, um, which was, you know, in that, in that time people had, the the normal was to have hair over your ears at least. And a lot of men had, uh, and boys had shoulder length hair. Yeah. And so when you came back with a short haircut, uh, you were really stood out mm-hmm. and, uh, went to a restaurant and the waitress just berated me for, uh, you know, obviously I was in the service and no hair on my head. And, right. uh, uh, so that's where, that was, those were the times. Yeah. It's crazy. Again, I mean, obviously I, I understand what you're saying, but it's just hard to comprehend that, yeah. that sentiment. But moving on from there, what was the, what was that flight school? Like you said, it was difficult. You made it through, but the, the actual act of flying, was it just unbelievable? Is it? Is well, it... so they had a, the, uh, they had a T-34 that was designed for flight school and it's like a beach uh, 
single engine aircraft that uh, you know people associate with the V-tail Bonanza. Well, it didn't have a V-tail, but it was that size of airplane, and it had uh, a, a normal uh, reciprocating engine in the front of it. And they had a lot of problems with that. In fact, I have a friend up here who crashed one of those because the engine quit. Hmm. And he lives up here in Lake Linden now. And he's, uh, he was very badly injured in that crash. And that ended his military service. Uh, and uh, so when I was starting, they had the T-28 then. And the T-28 is 1,425 horsepower uh, in a radial engine with nine cylinders and a big old prop. And uh, it was designed at the end of World War II to be a follow-on fighter uh, with tricycle gear instead of a, uh, being a tail dragger. Tricycle gear means the, there's a, a gear underneath, approximately underneath the engine, and there's two landing gear underneath the wings. And that's an easier uh, configuration to fly than the typical, up until that point, um, airplanes with a, with a wheel on the tail. Mm. Uh, and so, at any rate... Uh, this designed airplane then became the trainer for us. And so that was my first airplane in the Marines uh, in flight school uh, was this T-28 with 1,425 horsepower. It was a handful uh, for a guy that didn't know how to fly. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the reasons that most people washed out of flight school. Hmm. This thing was very difficult. So it just, when you added full power, you had to push a lot of rudder because the engine wanted the airplane wanted to fly sideways with all that torque. Right. Okay. But was it so very technical and a lot of people washed out, but what is it still? Uh, I mean, I'm thinking about you coming to the UP and coming to school, like this grand adventure for you as an 18 year old kid, right? Yeah. Uh, but was that too, or was it so technical and so intense that all you could think about was the the act of doing and making it through or where, when you're flying or like, look at me, I'm flying. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Though there wasn't much enjoyment in any part of this. It was just yeah. a challenge from start to finish. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There was, I remember one time I was taxing out for one of my solo flights in flight school and I was in a line of about 25 of these T-28s all churning up. We all had our canopies back because it was in Florida and it was hot. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you could kind of, I had the image for just a moment of the scarf on a World War One type mm -hmm. uh, pilot hanging out the uh, cockpit as you're taxiing because these engines made a very interesting noise, these sure. radial engines. They didn't run smoothly. It was, you know, brum, 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 and the smoke was coming out from the exhaust pipes and uh, all these young men were lined up uh, to take off one after another. Right. Uh, so that, I just remember that one scene and the rest of it was just a challenge from start to finish. Sure, okay. Because eventually flying becomes a thing that you really enjoy, right? But at, at first it was just so intensive that you're just trying to get through it basically? I think that's true for everybody that flies. Okay. You, you have this idea in your head that flying is something you wanna do but the challenges of it make enjoying it very difficult at first. It's just because you're so outside of your comfort zone. Yeah. You're in the air. Uh, people uh, typically think in two dimensions, right? Yeah. Uh, but now you have to think in three dimensions because you got altitude. Right. And uh, it takes people a long time mm -hmm. to get comfortable thinking in this 3D environment. Right. Okay. Um, so then, but then from there, did you end up going right up to, you flew up in Alaska for a while and you did some mission trips. I'm curious about, and we don't have to necessarily break down the exact timelines, no. but just got, thinking, yeah, go ahead. I got my private pilot's license here at uh, our 
Houghton County Memorial Airport Yeah, because uh, it was part of the Marine Corps program at the time. They would give you 35 hours of flight time plus two hours uh, for your check ride, and that was it. Yeah. So, uh, um, so I took participate in that program. It obligated me for another six months in the, uh, in the Marines, plus I was taking $100 a month, uh, which was a lot of money for a guy who didn't have any money back in those days. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I signed up in this program, got my f- a flight training here, uh, went in the service. I was in the service uh, seven years. And uh, at the end of that, my obligation, I didn't stick around. I uh, got out and joined the airlines and flew for Southwest Airlines for uh, almost 35 years. Okay. And then retired here six, huh. six years ago. Okay. And the reason I like to, uh, to me, I find a, a strong interest in the background because I think if you look through your life, again, you choosing Michigan Tech versus uh, Michigan State or whatever it might have been, uh, you going to living in New Mexico, you doing this, going up to Alaska, doing these trips, it all finds a common theme. And I guess I'm curious because I think you could do all those things and have it mean different things to different people, right? Somebody else could be an airline pilot and it's, because of the security or whatever, right? I mean, you have, it means different things to different people. So I'm curious for you, again, that going to Michigan Tech, did you have, I, I just find this in myself, like where I just crave adventure. Is that what it was since day one or did that uh, develop later in life? No, I, I never shrunk back from any opportunity. I, I was I was lucky enough to be given. Okay. And, uh, and uh, so I was just looking for challenges and one thing led to another. It's not like this was planned out yeah. Uh, as you can tell from my uh, selective service ex- experiment, where I was drafted, and uh, so, at any rate, mm. uh, just one thing led to another my entire life. Sure. Yeah. But and again, uh, I want to hear about the. Uh, I think shortly here we'll get back to the Mackenzie River trip and then uh, talk about a few different things. But I'm curious for you, when you're doing those things, when you're going on those trips. Is it a romantic thing? Like in your head, you're an explorer heading west. You're on the Lewis and Clark Trail. You're, you know what I mean? Like picture you're the 11 year old kid out exploring the backyard, and you're on this grand adventure, and you're a pirate. You know what I mean? Like, it, has it has that maintained the whole way through, or is it more of just enjoyment of the act? But or or what? Because for me, I have this higher arching romantic thing that this is like this grand adventure. Whatever I'm doing, if I'm backpack hunting, or for you've done some extreme things, right? Did you have that component too? Does that question make sense? It was just always trying to do something that was difficult. Okay. And you know the the definition of of a uh, adventure is that it's more fun to talk about afterwards than it is actually to do. Yeah. Right. You know, where a vacation is more fun to do than it is to talk about afterwards. Yeah. I mean, how are you going to talk about? Yeah, I went to the beach in Florida. Right. Hung out at the beach for a week. Well. You're done. Yeah. The story's over. You know, where yeah. an adventure is, man, it was awful. Yeah. You know, the mosquitoes were so thick. The uh, water was so bad. The, you know, the waves, blah, 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 blah. And you get all done with it, and you got more stuff to talk about. But while you're living it, it wasn't all that much fun. Right. I mean, right. it was a challenge. Yeah. F- fun and a challenge are two different things. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's dive into it though. Okay. So you 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 flew at Southwest Airlines for 35 years. Within that, you were able to do some some bush pilot flying up in Alaska too. Yes. Um, so the one thing about being an airline pilot is that you only you're working approximately half time, and the rest of the time you've got time off. You got all these rules for giving pilots uh, sufficient rest, right? Yeah. Well, pilots don't rest on their time off. They mm. they take advantage of those times and uh, they do all kinds of things. Yeah. 
And the free flight benefits allowed me to travel back and forth to Alaska at, at no cost or very minimal cost. And so this opportunity was there. And uh, it's, I had this little dream in the back of my head about Alaska, like many of us do. Right. And uh, so I was able to, to go up there. And um, after a few trips uh, in my own airplane, because I bought a little Super Cub, and uh, um, I was up there on one of my trips and with my Super Cub and my dad had come with me. So him and I were in the airplane. He'd, uh, he had become a pilot, I think, when he was 60. Hmm. Uh, uh, he's passed now. But uh, <clears throat> so uh, a, uh, an acquaintance of mine, which turned into a, uh, uh, to be a friend of mine, uh, was had a small airline up there, a little, what they call a 135, FAR Part 135 uh um, airline, which he had two airplanes in it, and he would fly hunters out hmm. to the various remote areas, and and so that's how he made his living. Well, he needed another pilot because he had two airplanes, mm-hmm. and so he said, uh, you know, John, why don't you uh, fly for me? He said, I won't pay you, but uh, you won't be spending all this money out of your own pocket for your own airplane up here. Yeah, and I said, good idea. Right. So I say it was for ten years I flew for him. He always corrects me and says it was less than that. Yeah. But uh, that's the memory I have. It seemed like it was 10 years. Because yeah. the first couple of years I did it, he had me at first in a Super Cub. And then he had me in a Cessna 185. So it's a little bit bigger airplane. Uh, Super Cub holds two people, the pilot and somebody. And the 185, although they've got six seats in some of them, you really only have room for four. Yeah. And uh, so you can take three uh, passengers with you. Mm-hmm. And then after that, for a couple of years didn't wreck anything because people wreck a lot of things up in Alaska flying. Mm-hmm. It's just the nature of the environment. And uh, uh, he had me in his Beaver. And a Beaver, De Havilland Beaver, once again, is a big radial motor. And uh, they operate well on floats, wheels, and skis, mm-hmm. as the Cessna does. But it's it's a bigger airplane. Now you can haul more weight. Okay. And so yeah did you enjoy that same thing the the first couple years was a lot of fun because of the adventure of it uh going to places that uh i wouldn't have gone normally and um and then after a while you're hauling other people's moose meat and we say a quarter of a moose can weigh 250 pounds that's probably a little bit of an exaggeration but they're extremely heavy Mm -hmm. and i'm not a big guy five foot ten but i've always been pretty strong and I could pick up one of these quarters of a moose and get up onto the float of the airplane. Someone would have to push you from behind mm-hmm. to get you up on the float and you'd uh, do a sidestep down the float of the airplane and get it into the back of the uh, uh, the cargo area of the airplane. And so uh, the first few years of hauling other people's moose meat around was, uh, was uh, interesting also because you meet a lot of interesting people out there that that come from all the cities of america and go up there for their adventure Mm -hmm. uh and but uh towards the end it got to be a little old okay just lost its uh lost its newness yeah yeah an adventure is something you're doing for the first or second time right you know after a while it just becomes what you're used to becomes routine yeah for sure uh so then you said you got it got old, but did you do any of your hunts, your own hunts and stuff like yes. that out there? Okay. He would always give me, uh, you know, 
one of the benefits of flying for my friend was that he'd give me an extra 20 gallons of gas and say, go fishing after you drop those people off. Yeah. So I'd land on these remote lakes, just myself, out there standing on the float of the airplane with my, sometimes a fly rod, but usually a spinning rod, and uh, catching fish. Yeah. And the funny part of uh, fishing up there is you can put a float plane in the middle of the lake and let the wind move you slowly across the lake, so you're mm. almost trolling sure. as you're catching the fish. You pick them up, and the float of the airplane, floats are hollow, right? The, right. The big tubes underneath the airplane, and they've got these hatches on the top of it. So you can have the hatch open, and as you pull up a pike or, or something, you just put it over the top of the uh, uh, float hatch, right. put your foot on it, pull the hook out, yeah. and uh, cast for the next one. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty soon, the, the float is half full of fish. Right. <laughs> yeah same thing that's got to be unbelievable I, I, to be out on a remote lake like that fishing by yourself nobody around yeah it's actually not all that safe is it sure if you have any problems at all you're there by yourself i have done all that stuff solo uh we could go off on another tangent here but let's stay with this sure so. okay um so then you did that you enjoyed that but i'm let's get headfirst into the mckenzie trip i want to do that if you're if you're okay with that uh so you're going up you're going on this adventure you drove up to edmonton you got another thousand miles to go you drive up through there through the buffalo now you're going to start this trip but you've done this before so it's not brand new i've never been on the uh, this river before but you did the yukon so you have some exposure yes, to okay. we know what what it's like to be on a long river yeah Big and you river and you've got these three dinghies with these small gas engine gas powered engines and what do you have for gear i mean what do you bring in well, you have to have, uh, uh, they've got all kinds of better fabrics today. Uh, but even in those days, we still had, you know, there was Gore-Tex and various other makes of, of stuff. But uh, the wind would typically uh, push water through some of these fancier fabrics. Mm -hmm. And so you went to the Helly Hansen thick PVC plastic uh, rain gear because yeah. water cannot get through that in a, in a strong wind. And uh, you typically, a lot of wools, the, you know, synthetic long johns and stuff was, was normal because uh, they were more comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, but you'd have older fabrics, the traditional more f fabrics worked well. And uh, so that's how you protect yourself from the climate. But you can just see why I'm talking so much about the right fabric. Mm -hmm. You'd have to have this type of mindset for every aspect of these trips. Right. Because you're going to be off on your own. Yeah. There's not like you can go to a store and say, well, I'll need another jacket. Mm -hmm. And so everything from the food has got to be planned uh, to the, where you're going to stop and get more gas. And there, for that, there happened to be an, an Indian, Indian village about every 300 miles on this river. Okay. And so they would sell people gas. Mm-hmm whoever showed up. And so uh, not all these Indian villages are the friendliest. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and so I remember stopping at one uh, little Indian village and uh, taking our gas cans and walking up into the village and gassing them up. And we didn't see anybody. There's nobody out. It's like deserted. Everybody's inside their buildings. I don't know why, but uh, uh, their houses and uh, to carrying all these gas cans back down to the river and then having a uh, indigenous person that wasn't from that village who tried to do the same thing and he got ran out of town. Hmm. And he comes running back down and he says, I, I can't even get gas here. And he just jumps in his boat and he takes off. Hmm. Well, you wouldn't see any people on the river. So this was a rare event as you even see anybody else on the river. Right, right. 
Um, so, but yeah, you have to plan the entire logistics, like you said, yeah. food, all that. But are you are you are you fishing along the way and stuff for food? Yes, we caught very few fish on the okay. entire Mackenzie. We fished all the time. You know, it was fun. We had our spinning gear with us, and uh, we just didn't know where to go. Okay, uh, and was fish part of your food plan, or would you have been okay if you caught zero fish? Yeah, we were okay without any fish. Okay. Uh, and you're, how much prep time do you have into this? Like, cause I, again, I'm thinking about a hunt out West, I, whether or not you have to, I prep quite a ways ahead of time just cause it's fun to do. It keeps you engaged in it, whatever else. Right. But how much prep time, uh, maybe two part questions, a, do you have to, but did you find yourself doing, were you prepping a year in advance or what, what did that look like? Well, at least a couple months in advance, you'd oh. make sure you had all the right gear. You know, you'd have to go inflate your boats again. Uh, these boats I'd used before. So we had to go inflate them in some water and make sure the motor ran and uh so you'd get ready yes okay so a lot of prep but then again logistically thinking about food gear sleeping bags tents yes dry sacks all that kind of stuff tarps whatever it might be yep okay you'll find that you can get by with a lot less gear than you think you need yeah and and did you learn that from your first trip and apply that on the second one oh yeah okay um you know and all the hunting and fishing trips pretty soon it gets to be kind of easy yeah uh, getting ready for the for another trip yeah right yeah, do you... Uh, the biggest the challenge was getting gas. Sure. Okay. So, again, yeah, thinking about hopping in a boat and going roughly 1,000 miles, that's just crazy to think about. You had six of you, so two per boat. On the Mackenzie, there's only three of us. Okay, I got you. Six was at the second leg of the Yukon, yeah. Yep. Okay, so Mackenzie, three of you guys in three different boats. Yep. Okay, so you each had your own boat. And that was for safety because if something didn't work... Uh, which happened in one of my bear hunting trips where a, uh, a bear ate my buddy's raft hmm. uh, and destroyed my raft uh, with stepping on it with his claws. And so we had to lay up for two days in a cabin, remote cabin, and patch the boat. Mm-hmm. And luckily it got going again, but his boat was gone. So he always had to have multiple boats so that... Uh, you could take care of emergencies like that. Right, right. So when you when you are taking off, though, how, can you give me some context? The Mackenzie River, is it pretty a, a pretty wide river? Obviously, it varies throughout, but is it size of the river? And then what's the landscape around like? Uh, and obviously, it's got to be very a lot. But anyways, can you give some context so, to that? Yeah, you know, the closest thing would be like the Ontonagon River. Okay. Um, uh, but it'd be, you know, probably twice as big sure. as the Ontonagon River. Okay, so pretty uh, sizable. Yeah. 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 And with lakes that would flow into and out of. So sometimes you'd be in still water for the lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you'd look for the exit and keep on going. Sure. And you just got paper maps that you're using? Yes. Or what you... That was, uh, um, we always had paper maps along. Uh, you couldn't, there, there had to be, uh, I'm sure we had some GPS stuff along, but, um, I don't think we relied on it. And, sure. You know, once you get in a river, you're going to go where the river goes. Yeah. So except for, uh, you know, I'm not sure we had any GPS stuff. How long ago was that? Yeah, I don't know. I was going to ask you that. What, what rough year on this do you think? Um, I'll have to think about that. Okay. It's been a couple decades. Yeah. Uh, but uh, so because I remember there was one area on the uh, Mackenzie where there was a coal seam alongside the river that was on fire. Hmm. And that fire had been burning for 300 years. Wow. And so I wanted to find where that coal seam was just to see what it was like to have the sides of hills being on fire. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd read a book about somebody who had canoed 
this entire river. Uh, by the way, that's something Canadians like to do because uh, it, it's got this uh, romantic appeal for Canadians yeah. because of their history with the far north and the trapping and the French and all these stories that they've had. So this is a big dream of Canadians to do this river. Few of them ever do it. Yeah. But in this book that was written about floating the Mackenzie, the guy had looked for that coal seam fire mm-hmm. and couldn't find it. Hmm. And so I was determined to find it. And just by luck, uh, because I was watching a couple black bear that were on the uh, shoreline, so I happened to pull up to see the black bear closer, and I saw a little bit of smoke. Yeah. So after the back black bear took off, uh, we climbed up in these hills, first my, just myself, and then I motioned for my two friends to come join me in their, their boats. They came over there, and we found the fire. Hmm. And it wasn't as obvious as you'd think. Uh, because the fire is occurring under the ground. Yeah. And so just every once in a while, it'll find a, a uh, an exit on the surface. And so you'll have a very hot fire in like a 12-inch square area mm-hmm. until it burns itself out. And then it kind of disappears for a while. Yeah. And then it'll come out some other place, maybe 100 yards away. It'll come out from the, from the side of the hill there. Right. Right. Similar thing in North Dakota where I was at, uh, there was a same thing. Well, there'd be coal veins there and, and a rancher that I, I would talk to quite a bit would, uh, mention that, yeah, something's been burning for many, many years and he's known people where the other yeah, horse falls through, burns their legs, stuff like that. It's crazy to think about, but it's just not the, the perfect blend of just enough oxygen to just slowly simmer away. Eh? Yeah. This fire was started, they say, by uh, some Indians that are out hunting okay. and uh, they started a, a campfire and they're using the coal to help feed the campfire yeah. because it was easier than going out looking for wood in an area, you know, you're so far north, there isn't much wood anymore. Sure. The trees are very small and sparse, a lot of willow brush, but mm. not a whole lot of big trees. Uh, and uh, they caught the hillside on fire. It's been burning ever since. Crazy. Uh, but th- thinking back to, again, that question of landscape, it, it must vary a lot, or is it all pretty much the same, like Arctic tundra type stuff, or what is it? There's a lot of tundra, of course, big flat areas, and the farther north you got, the more, uh, but there's hills, you know, the glaciers had come through this, the northern part of Canada, yeah. and so there's hills, there's uh, areas dug out, uh, big valleys, uh, uh Mountains that, uh, uh, you know, near the Mackenzie River, a big mountain would be probably three or 4,000 feet mm. tall, uh, which is bigger than we've got here in the Keweenaw. Right. But, uh, f- you know, when you're thinking about out west or uh, up north, that's not a very big mountain. Uh, the coastal range in Canada is mountains eight or, eight or 9,000 feet tall. There's a few of them uh, up around... I think 18,000 feet okay. when you get uh, near the U.S. border. Uh, so there's a lot of mountains, but yeah. in this area, it's a lot of low land. Sure. Uh, you're not going to see big mountains. In fact, you don't see any mountains to speak of from the Mackenzie. You're too low to okay. see much. I got gotcha. you. And, and what that must have been, the Yukon goes through a lot of pretty intense mountainous country, right? Maybe not 10,000 feet, but still 3,000 feet. I've never been up there, so I'm not sure. When it's going through Circle and Eagle and all these places, what is that? No, it's mostly a low, lower hills. You'll have a 500-foot uh, cliff okay. maybe off to the sides where the river goes through. Um, but it's a lot of lower stuff. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then so you're going down this... It, 
and again the adventure the three we it took you how long did the mckenzie take you overall three weeks three weeks uh and sometimes not that fun in the midst of it. What were some of those moments that are like, what are we doing here? <laughs> well, uh, in one area, they've got the Mackenzie Rapids. Okay. And uh, you get in these rapids that you're expecting to see white water and all this stuff. And then the water is just kind of rolling. Yeah. But there's so much water going through this Mackenzie uh, that it's actually quite scary hmm. being in a small raft with this much water churning underneath you and not knowing which direction to go because it's their uh, area of rapids. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of water there. You can, uh, for an example, we came into this one uh, village on the Yukon. Uh, it, I'm, it's unfortunate, but Indians use these waterways all the time. And, um, their accidents happen. Kids fall overboard and they never, they rarely find the bodies. Yeah. Because the river is just, there's just too much water and currents and, and um, things at the bottom uh, that bodies can get trapped under. So it's not, that's kind of a, uh, not a fun th topic to talk about. But, uh, you know, this is like a highway for people that live that far north. Mm -hmm. The same thing on the Mackenzie. Right. Right. Okay. Forrester Research interviewed 206 senior technology leaders in major organizations responsible for software development sourcing. 63% said their software development service partners do not have a full understanding of their end customer. If you're dead serious about moving faster and getting more done, Zeratech Software Development can help you move forward with confidence. Let the team at Zeratech Software Development help solve your problems with mobile, web, and backend solutions. As they align with their clients, they use a proven method to understand the scope of the problem and help demystify the steps to make it go away. They will deliver the software solution you need, and they do it with the integrity that you'd expect from a family-owned business in the heartland of America. Schedule a call with the team at Zeratech today at zeratech.com. That's X-E-R-A-T-E-C.com. Um, but other moments that you, again, just thinking about some of the, the big hurdles through that trip that you had to, that you guys would have to overcome. Well, here's, here's a fun thing. Uh, the distance is the biggest hurdle. Okay. Uh, but we came up to, uh, Norman Wells, which is on the Mackenzie, about two thirds of the way mm -hmm. up the river. Yeah. And, uh, there's a sizable town there. Sure. And, uh, we ran into some, uh, people, um, uh, that uh, were on their way out to go camping and they camped in one of these uh, islands that you're showing me on the map there. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you which one. Yeah. But uh, what people would do is they'd uh, find a island or the shoreline that would have melting tundra on it. So mm -hmm. this tundra is this really, it's got a lot of organic material in it. It's this thick black mud. Hmm. And uh, if you go up there with a bucket of water from the river and start throwing the water down and you can make a slide and the first couple guys that slide down uh i mean it's something like from a water park mm -hmm. uh, the first couple guys that slide down of course it's very rough and it almost hurts yeah as you're hitting these bumps on your fanny as you're sliding down the side of this this hill but after a couple more buckets of water and a few more guys it gets really slick yeah and you come down with tremendous speed and i've got films of me and my uh two other adventurers sliding down this thing and you just and the, we would tell each other okay no don't make a sound 
on the way down. Yeah. And you couldn't help it. Right. Every bump would you go, yeah, you'd be yelling and screaming and, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the, the, the because it's you're out of control and you're it's not like you're going down a water park where you got sides of this thing. You could go anywhere down this down this hill. Right. And you you come very fast. Yeah. And the thing of it is this muck is so black and the river is so muddy that you can't wash yourself off afterwards. Hmm. You just go out there in the river with your bar soap and try to clean yourself up afterward, you're black for a couple of days. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. So the distance is the hurdle though. Hey, that's the big slug. Yeah. Do you what's the what's the uh the brain space that you go through? I mean, is it like the Well, you don't there's well, one of the other problems, you don't know which of these Indian villages is going to be friendly to you and oh. which ones, you know, because there's a lot of animosity between the villagers and white people. Sure. And that's how they refer to people up there. Yeah. You're Indian or you're white or you're Eskimo. Right. You're labeled by, you know, your, who you are, Mm -hmm. uh, your ethnicity. And, uh, uh, they will beat you up. Sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's just on the Yukon. I remember I was talking to this one, uh, guy that I ran into. He was in a little, uh, outboard, uh, V-hull boat on the on the river, and uh, he was heading up to his cabin. He came in to circle to get gas, and I was he had a thirty-eight revolver on his hip, mm-hmm. and I'm going, uh, you know, I talking to him, and the mosquitoes were so thick he couldn't hardly see anybody's face. You could talk to somebody three feet away, and their face would be a blur because there's so many mosquitoes. Yeah, and so I'm talking to this guy, and I go, "What are you going to do with that thirty-eight? You can't shoot a bear with a thirty-eight, right?" And he goes, "It's not for the bears." Yeah. Hmm. It's for self-protection against hostile people. Right. And uh, you wouldn't think about that, that in this day and age, right? But there's open warfare between the Eskimo and the Indians still going on today. And uh, sometimes the trappers and the hunters get in the middle of that. Yeah, sure. So it's, it's, you're, you're way away from any help. Yeah. You're a long ways away from it. You've got to help yourself. Right. Right. So, so you're thinking about that when you're going through too, eh? On top of just straight survival and yes. food and where you're going to camp and whatever else. The, and, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rifles as protection against bears or, I mean, you get far north in uh, uh, in Canada, you're in the polar bear country. Yeah. And polar bear are one of those animals that will uh, hunt you down and eat you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're just on the food chain for polar bear. Right. Did you see any polar bears? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, any encounters with them? No. Okay. But at the same time we're up there, a guy got eaten uh, um, just, I don't know, 50 miles from where we were, uh, maybe not even that far. Yeah. Uh, and he was he got almost eaten completely, but he was able to defend himself with his rifle. Right. And uh, then he was in the hospital trying to recuperate for weeks and weeks afterwards. Hmm. Crazy. So, so it does happen, eh? Yeah. So thinking again about the Mackenzie, that distance being the distance, the, the, the big hurdle and you see a lot of different things you've seen some polar bears at the end of it where where are you at then again is it something where you're i'm never doing this again but you hop in the vehicle and you're like planning the next trip or what is that what is that like yes well um two of us uh wanted to come back and and explore some more we went we on the first trip we were supposed to go all the way out to the ocean okay and we uh made it to uh Imanic, yeah. Uh, not Imanic. Um, You're talking the first Yukon trip. Yeah, yeah. I know. I was, uh, so uh, let's go back over here to the Mackenzie on this map. Sure, yeah. Um, so that town right there, 
is it Inuvik or Aklavik yeah. or Inuvik? I'm probably yep. pronouncing these wrong. So we yeah. made it to Inuvik, and uh, from there on out, it was nothing but swamps and stuff. So we had to stop the trip there. We ran out of time. Okay. And uh, it, if you can look at this map, it's off of the main river. Mm-hmm. So how do you even find this place? Right. Well, just with maps, uh, rivers change every year. So uh, it's a little troublesome, but we were able to find the right channels yep. and uh, make it into town. And then we uh, bought airline tickets to go up the last, whatever it is, 100 miles to uh, the town there. Tuck, Tuck? Yep. Yeah, tuck. They just call yeah, it Tuck. Yeah, okay. Yeah, tuck, yeah, sure. Yeah, call it Tuck. And uh, so we, we got our tour of the town. We went there and saw... You know, the old church, the graveyard, the some of the old boats that people used to use 100 years ago because huh. uh, things have changed a lot in 100 years. Right. You know, now we got more modern boats and engines and stuff. They used to have little old one-lung diesel engines that ran a lot of the fishing boats. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, and we made an agreement that we were going to come back the next year and actually take our boats uh, and continue on. Right, and right. we were able to do that. And the swamps are so extensive up there. Yeah. It's very difficult to navigate. Uh, but so we we just came up there for a couple-week trip, and we made a big circle out there in the Delta area hmm. and, uh, you know, made it back. Uh, the people that we gave our boats to, or sold them to, they allowed us to come back and reuse them. Okay, cool. That was part of the deal. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I've always been rebuilding airplanes, so we sold our two boats in exchange for a whole pile of airplane parts that I brought back to New Mexico and rebuilt uh, airplanes and used all those parts. That's a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> the Okay, so I think in Mackenzie, that was your uh, second trip like that, but you mentioned the camping in 60 below zero. When did that happen? That was on... Uh, so. I've managed to follow the dogs on the sled dog race, the Iditarod sled dog race up in Alaska, uh, seven times. Okay. Uh, Three of those times, well, first four of those times was was working for my friend uh, that had this little 135 operation up there, and I would take a paying passenger. Hmm. I never got paid for this, but, uh, you know, he was smart enough to get me to, to work for him. And, uh, and fly these customers of his out to Nome, which yeah. was the ending point on the sled dog race. Right. So, but then three of these trips, I had uh, my friends come with me in their super cubs. So we're flying our super cubs. That's how we followed the dogs. We wouldn't actually get in a sled dog, uh, a sled pulled by dogs. Mm-hmm. That would be. I mean, that's a whole nother level of technology. You have to kind of devote your life to that if you're actually going to get good at that. Yeah. And, or snowmobiles. I guess we could have done it in snowmobiles, but uh, we wanted to do it with our small two-passenger airplanes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had them on skis. And so you land at all these checkpoints along the trail or you go to other places. There are hot springs you can visit mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, follow the dogs. It was another, another adventure. Hmm. Uh, so in one of these trips we had stopped on the Yukon River at uh, Ruby I believe the name of the town is okay haven't been there in a few years now 
and we were camped on the Yukon River. Two of my friends had walked into the town, which the town goes almost straight up the hill from the river, and so it's not easy to walk into town. You have to walk uphill at quite a steep angle, Mm -hmm. and uh, they had found a little uh, guest house, a little hotel, if you will. They rent out some of their rooms in the room in their house, and uh, they had talked him into letting him sleep up there where it was warmer, where me and a Two of my other friends and uh, uh, had decided to stay in our tents uh, alongside of our airplanes. And cold, wet, cold air always seeks the lowest uh, place. And so just up the hill, it might have been only 30 below. Yeah. Down on the river, it was almost 60 below. Uh, I don't know exactly because I stepped on my thermometer at some point and uh, it broke. And so it broke at about almost 50 below so it was it was colder than 50 below right some of the uh, um, sled dog uh, the mushers that we ran into the next day said no it hit 60 yeah it was 60 below zero and I believe it so I'm in a tent uh, a canvas wall tent that I had made we had all made our tents because no one made at that time the perfect uh, tent that you could carry and still in a super cub and still withstand high winds yeah. and uh, not have to use uh, stakes to stake down your tent because you're, you're sleeping on a couple feet of snow all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you have to have a, a tent that supports itself and is sturdy enough to withstand high winds. And then you have this little stove that we'd made ourselves uh, that burnt uh, 100 low lead airplane gas hmm. so we didn't have to carry a second type of fuel along mm-hmm. and it was just uh, one gallon would last you many hours and so it was very efficient and it would warm up a tent and, but you couldn't sleep with that with a stove on you'd be afraid of asphyxiating yourself during the middle of the night yeah. so you would turn off the stove but you'd you know you'd wear your your two layers of long johns a thin pair and a thick pair and your heavy wool uh, pants that you had specially purchased for this trip. And uh, then over the top of that, you'd have your Carhartt uh, Arctic weight cover, uh, coveralls and your Arctic weight jacket over the top of a sweaters and shirts all made out of wool. And uh, so you'd take just off your, your outer jacket, your Carhartt jacket, everything else you'd wear inside your sleeping bag. Mm-hmm. And we bought the best sleeping bags we could get at the time. They're rated to 40 below zero. Now it's going to be 60 below zero. So with all your clothes on in the side of this thing, you'd also heat up a quart of water on the stove uh, to boiling and close that and put it in the, on the bottom of the sleep bag by your feet, climb into this thing, pull the uh, mummy bag up so just a few inches of your face is showing so you can breathe and try to sleep. Well, nothing about this is comfortable. Right. Uh, you're, you're almost shivering inside the sleeping bag, mm-hmm. but not quite. And uh, as you're breathing, as you fall asleep and you're breathing, uh, all the frost builds up on the uh, mummy bag part that's only got a few inches of your face exposed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as the frost builds up and builds up and builds up as you're breathing, finally, it just happens after about three hours of of sleeping there, breathing, the frost, you'll wiggle or something and the frost will break off 
that's all around you and fall on your face and just suck all the joy yeah. out of your soul <laughs> that was left. <laughs> yeah. And so you get up, you're shaking now, you're shivering. You get up, you get that bottle out, you get the stove going, and you boil the water again, and finally you're stopping to, you're not shaking anymore. And you get this uh, bottle closed up with the, uh, with the boiling water in there, you throw it in the bottom of your bag, and you repeat this process. Just invariably, three hours later, you wake up with the frost falling on your face, robbing any joy that you had in your soul again. Right. And uh, then you just quit. That was enough attempts at sleeping. Yeah. And uh, you get up and get the stove going and try to make some food. Yeah, right. Do you remember why you chose to stick on the with the tent versus go in the, the guest house? Yeah. We weren't going to give up. Yeah. This is what we had planned on doing, and by golly, we were going to do it. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, the following along with the Iditarod, you had paying, that the guy you're working for had paying people, and that's kind of the, the whole point is they that's were paying I, to follow along, or why no. would somebody? Okay. That's how I learned how to do this. So the first, uh, when uh, my friend said, I got some customers that like to do the, you know, one guy is this Russian guy, was the sponsor of one of the dog teams. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to follow his team all the way to Nome. And so, but my friend had arranged for um, lodges for us to sleep in. And uh, at one point, just the living room of somebody, we camped out on his living room floor. Yeah, You know, you're way away from normal support systems. There's no Holiday Inn you can go to in these places. Right. Uh, it's very uh, rough. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Where does the Iditarod start again? It starts in Anchorage. Goes from Anchorage to Nome. Yep. And uh, got two different routes. One year takes it through uh, the little ghost town of Iditarod. Okay. It used to be a mining town. Yeah. And uh, then in other years, it goes up through uh, uh, Galena on the Yukon. And okay. Heads on the way up to Nome from that other path. Sure. And the Iditarod is south of Galena or where? I did, do what? The, where Iditarod in relation to Galena. Where is that? Do you know? Um, well, the Galena is up on the Yukon. Yeah, I got it you here. see it there. Yeah. And Iditarod is out here in the middle someplace. Okay. It's an old mining town. There's nothing left there. There's a what's left of a bank building, which is the vault. Right. And some uh, cement walls. Uh you can go inside the vault and find pieces of paper that show Joe somewhere or other deposited $3 worth of gold on this and this is date. You can see the receipts in there. Hmm. I've got a couple of them yeah. that I brought back with me. Um, you can find uh, there's, if I landed out there in the once in the summertime where there's no snow, you can go in these old buildings. I brought back a handful of rivets that were like half inch in diameter built for putting big I-beams together. Uh, from the mining days, uh, there's thousands of, yeah, thousands. There's at least hundreds of women's shoes in various states of uh, rotting and disrepair mm-hmm. laying in the closets of all these old buildings. Hmm. Uh, I never found a men's shoes. Yeah, It's always just women's shoes. Huh. All the latest styles, you know, those things that they had in the 30s and 40s with these high lace-up things. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, for sure. Are you pretty in tune and have you, uh, with Alaska history, I mean, going up there, did that inspire you to look into a lot of that history? Yes, but uh, I was mostly, uh, yes, so I've I've read, I know about the Russians who uh, 
who had first owned, you know, Alaska was uh, a Russian uh, territory at one point. We mm-hmm. purchased it from them. And I know about the Russian history of coming into uh, all the way into southeast Alaska for their explorations and their, you know, people would uh, do amazing trips for furs, you know, yeah, 200 years ago. Right. Uh, but what about more recent times, even like since we've been involved, like have you read in coming into the country by John McPhee, I think is uh, one that I've heard recommended. I read most of it. Uh, but how, did you look, have you like when you're going through these places and you're going down the river and doing this, do you, do you know a lot of historical context? Yes. That, there's, um, there's these old churches that are in, you know, from the Russian days. Yeah. Uh, so not, not more recent. I don't know, uh, exactly what you're referring to. I've read, Milchner's book, Alaska, I think. Okay. If I pronounce his name right. Sure. Uh, so that was interesting. Um, several of the books I read, yeah. Okay. I guess what I'm curious about is the trips that you're going on. The, the, again, the Yukon, the Mackenzie, when you're going, do you know a lot of uh, history about those that gives you an appreciation as you're going along for yes. the trip itself? Well, that's okay. one of the reasons for doing the Yukon, right? Is because in 1897, they found gold up in uh, um, Dawson. Mm-hmm. And uh, so hundreds and hundreds of gold miners had to enter Canada by carrying, I think, 2,000 pounds of supplies hmm. uh, out of uh, Skagway oh. up what and uh, what they called the Golden Stairway mm-hmm. uh, up to the top, crossing the border into Canada. They, the Mounties, Canadian Mounties had scales up there and the, you had to weigh in with exactly the requirement for supplies. Mm-hmm. And then you carried all that stuff uh, over to um, the first lake there. Uh, see on sure. your map the name of that lake, but they all had to build boats out of the local trees that they felled to, to split into lumber to make boats that they would take up the river then uh, to Dawson. Hmm. where the gold rush, the gold find was at. Okay. And so, yes, I'd read about all that, and we were... It was interesting because in order to do that, so we took all our gear uh, to Skagway yeah. and went into a motel, and the next morning we uh, got a ride from the motel out to the beginning of the trail, and we backpacked for three days uh the same route that the miners used in 1897. Hmm. And uh, he came up with what they called the Golden Stairway where he had to carry all this valuable uh, weight. And uh, back in those days, of course, they had horses and all kinds of stuff to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a big deal that they did. This wasn't a bunch of guys with backpacks on. They were, right. except for that portion where they had to carry it up. So uh, up this real steep uh, incline for to get to the scales where the Mounties were set up. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there's probably hundreds and hundreds of horses that died carrying all these supplies. Uh, it was, you know, people didn't do things in a nice, neat way back then. Yeah. This was about getting that gold as quickly as they could. And they were, uh, you know, nobody was thinking environmental. Nobody was thinking how to be kind to pack animals. Mm-hmm. It was all about getting that gold as quickly as they could. Sure and uh, get into Dawson so they could stake their claims. <clears throat> so, and the whole idea then is we had built these uh, trolleys that uh, were made out of plywood. We brought all the wood with us. And uh, when we got 
to the railroad tracks that were outside of Skagway by hiking. We uh, hitchhiked back into town, uh, spent a night at the motel getting cleaned up again, mm-hmm. got all our gear out to the railroad tracks, and we were going to push our railroad, our uh, gear down to the uh, the first lake. Where's Skagway on your Skagway map? Skagway right here. Okay. And uh, the first lake is... No, I don't that's know. not it. Uh, it's before Croc Bennett Lake. It's not sure. on your map, but it's uh, right there here. It is. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Bennett Lake. And uh, we were going to inflate our rafts there with all our gear and go out Bennett Lake to Carcross mm-hmm. and uh, continue on this chain of lakes uh, through Whitehorse. There's the dam. We had to go around the dam there. Yeah, and uh, continue down the down the Yukon. Hmm. Uh, so. This is a different trip, of course, but the first this took us three weeks to get to Circle, right? And we came back two years later. Uh, all the same guys came back two years later, with the addition of uh, my brother-in-law, who came on the second half. Okay, there was two guys, two new guys on the second half, and uh, then we floated for three weeks uh, with a little bit better rafts out to Amonic, okay, which is on the ocean. Right, right. So those two years though that go by, are you? Is this something you're thinking about all the time? Can't wait to get back there. Well, it's not like you're thinking about it all the time, but uh, there's planning. Of course, it has to. There's lots of emails that go back and forth, keeping people interested, and uh, you know, hopefully, everybody's each. You know, people lived in various different cities. It wasn't like we all lived in uh, New Mexico together. and so everyone's got to prepare their own rafts, their own boats, get their own food, uh, and have it shipped up. And mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm just curious, again, even relating it back to myself, thinking about Western hunts, when I have something like that in the future, it like gives me life. It gives me something to think about, research, like keeps me excited. And then also the people that I'm going with, it gives you something exciting to talk about and think about. And like you said, in hindsight, it's exciting to talk about after. That's a, a huge component of it or a huge benefit side effect you don't realize going into anything but anyways i'm just curious for you if was that the case like something that sustains you and gives you life and purpose of thinking about that that future trip coming up no okay not on that same level sure but uh you know there's just been so many trips that i think i just took it for granted okay sure and you know, uh, hopefully, the, everybody else was going to stay motivated because yeah. it's very difficult to do one of these trips by yourself. Right. Although I've done a couple solo kayaking trips out of Southeast Alaska, mm-hmm. and every time you get back from one of these, you go and why did I do that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and you're saying why did you do that? You're saying because of the solo component and the risks yeah. that come with that. It's always better to have at least one other person with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're 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 on the edge if you're by yourself. I've done all kinds. I've uh, when I was 16, I did the Cross Michigan Trail hmm. from Tawa City uh, over to the sand dunes there by Great Bear Lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't we call them the Great Bear Sand Dunes? Something like that. Manistee yeah. maybe or something like that. Or I, I'm mixing it up. Yeah, I don't but anyways, know that yeah. took me two weeks. I started with my cousin, but he had to quit after three days because he got blisters so bad. Okay. You know, two 16-year-old boys. Right. Why did our parents let us do that? Yeah. <laughs> Awesome they did, though. Right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that took a lot of planning because, of course, I was young, but that was one of my first trips I ever did. Yeah. And so that took a lot of planning. Okay. Um, so I'm asking you about, like, what is this thing? Are you thinking about this, whatever else? But you've lived a life full of these that it's this is just one of one of many is kind of what you're saying, eh? 
So the, the benefit of all this, it gives me, and plus being in the Marines, it gives you a different outlook about adventures and challenges and yeah. things. I mean, that's one of the things that allowed me to be a missionary yeah. in uh, um, Paraguay. Uh, I didn't find that to be a challenge at all. I was down there sharing the gospel message with people in remote villages. Huh. And uh, you always know that you're on the edge because you're away from all kinds of help. Uh, you know, if you grow up in the in, a, in the states, you there's always someone to rescue you. Yeah. If you get in trouble out in Lake Superior, there's radios today, especially less so mm-hmm. 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. But there's the Coast Guard to rescue you. There's other fishermen out there. Uh, when you get in these remote areas, you don't know the culture. Mm-hmm. I go into Sonora, uh, Mexico, as we say. Sonora, Mexico, right uh, for us gringos, yeah. But uh, and it's the land of the cartels. There's danger down there. But if you're not messing around the drug trade or the human trafficking trade, they're going to leave you alone. Yeah. It's kind of like they kind of like you being there, doing humanitarian aid in these poor villages. It's not that they like you, but they can't find a reason for not liking what you're doing. Sure. I guess. And so they let us operate. We've been operating there for. Um, me, almost 15 years, but the group's been doing it for 30 or 40 years. Yeah. I can't even uh, come up with a real hard date, but they've been doing it decades longer than I've been a part of that group. But I'm the now, because of all the danger in Sonora, I'm the last uh, Spanish-speaking uh, um, missionary that's working in this area of Sonora. Okay. I didn't learn, you know... So, talk about adventures I decided when I was 48 years old that I was going to learn how to speak Spanish and uh, just another challenge in life and I went to a school in Cuernavaca Mexico seven years in a row for one month every year hmm. all the while I'm doing these other adventures too right and uh, um, and learn how to speak Spanish huh. that was an uphill challenge taking a guy that's 48 years old and yeah I'm going to learn how to speak Spanish yeah well, I'm fluent today and uh, I think I had uh, supernatural help in doing so. Sure. Uh, it was a gift to me to do this mission work in both Sonora for almost 15 years now. Just one, one week or one three-day trip per month uh, um, for 12 months of the year. Yeah. And now we're, we haven't gone now. And the last, the last trip I made was in May. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the new cartel violence that's down there. It's a whole other subject, I know. But sure. having a sense of adventure allows you to do all kinds of stuff in life. You don't shrink back from adventure. Uh, you embrace it. Right. And so the same mindset that I developed, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't from being in the Marines and this probably this little trip I made when I was 16 years old, hiking across Michigan, uh, propelled me th- for all these other adventures in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's unusual. Do you know that? Not many people, I don't think, I don't think many people are willing to take on those kind of challenges. They stay in there safe, secure. This has worked for me. I don't need to change anything. It's unusual. So I just, yeah, kind of curious where that comes from for you. Sounds like it's been there for a long time, but it's awesome. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where it comes from, yeah. but it's, it, you got to remember, this is a uh, definition of, uh, of adventures that I've, I think I created this one, but uh, maybe somebody famous wrote about this in a book. But the definition of adventure 
is it's always more fun to talk about it afterwards than yeah. it is to do. Right, right. Yeah, so speaking Spanish, right? You struggled yeah. through it. Yeah. Uh, did that change your life, speaking Spanish? It's something I've considered. Uh, well, it gave me other opportunities, right? Sure. So um, I'm a uh, Wisconsin Synod Lutheran at this point in my life. Yeah. Uh, I started off in the Missouri Synod. There's all kinds of different Lutherans out there, but uh, I found a very comfortable home here in the Wisconsin Synod, and uh, they have a uh, a person that's not designed to be a pastor of a parish, but it's called a staff minister. Mm-hmm. He's designed to do other things sure. in churches, and it has uh, qualified me to be a missionary in Paraguay, for example. Uh, I got one three-year call to, to do that, mm-hmm. uh, and then that ended. And uh, I'm sure they all think I'm of a retirement age. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm a retirement age yesterday yet. Right. So I st- continue to do this work in in Sonora. Sure. Uh, so but what? It does. It, oh, go ahead. Learning a language gives you opportunities that you'd never be able to participate in without that. Right. Yeah. It's a skill set. You gotta you gotta take your skill sets to these different opportunities that you have. Sure. Right. But does it change the way you think too? Like learning a different language. I mean, there's some languages that have different. Uh, entirely different concepts, right? That's the Spanish is like that. Okay. Uh, we can talk about um, the different parts of the language that are more that are less exact than English. Okay. English is a is a language that defines things. Right. If I say my cell phone here is on on the table, you know it's on the surface of the table. Yeah. In Spanish, they say in la mesa. You really don't know if it's under the table, in the table, or on top of the table. Huh. It's the language is not exact. Right. Uh, you have to share a common understanding when you're talking in Spanish. Okay. Um, and we have to in English also. Yeah. It, it, uh, language takes part inside the culture. Sure. You cannot right. remove the language from the culture and still have effective communication. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because even thinking, isn't there like six words for love in Chinese and in, in, in the Chinese language, uh, things like that, that I'm thinking about that. Like, again, it, the yeah. only structure I have is the English language. And if you yeah. had this other language, you would be able to think things from a whole different perspective, potentially. I've, I've heard that about Greek, okay. and not about Chinese, but I don't know anything sure. about Chinese. Right. Um, yes. Uh, it, it structures how you think language you know, it's a software program. Your brain mm-hmm. is, is programmed in a certain way. And if, if the language that you're programmed with doesn't allow concepts, uh, you know, you don't think it like in, in Mexico, they really, I had to search for years to find a term for backpacking. Okay. They don't think of backpacking, you know, where we in America, because of our history here, we will go backpacking and hiking and stuff like that. They think of day trips okay they will go hiking for you know a long walk sure uh so it's just an example of how the language is framed by the culture they don't need a term for backpacking right right when they think of backpacking it's a guy walking along the road that's too poor to buy a bus ticket sure sure uh and then this even ties right into your flying world are you familiar with have you read the book outliers by malcolm gladwell uh, I have heard of it. Okay. Anyways, one part of it, he talks about what makes people successful and different things, whatever else. But anyways, one little blip of it, talking about airplanes, right, is Korean Airlines 
had a high, high fatality, fatality rate. Uh, is this ring a bell at all? Are you familiar with this? Yeah. And then, and, and so a high, high fatality rate, the, my understanding of this is going off eight years ago when I read this book, but anyways, high fatality rate, but it was because within their language, you could not override somebody that was senior to you. Like it was not an ability. You could not do it. And they, they had times and tons of situations where a co-pilot or somebody in, uh, uh, uh whatever it might be a stewardess or whatever would see something that needs to be addressed, but they did not have it within their language structure to confront the the pilot or somebody above them. They made it a policy. Everybody has to speak English. And now their fatality rate went way, way down. Oh. Uh, because now within this new English f- structure, they had the ability to tell a senior person that, hey, this is wrong. We need to fix this. The concept was part of the language. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I was uh, attributed that to a cultural thing, but yeah. I'm sure it's tied to the language because you cannot separate, like I said just a few minutes ago, right. you cannot separate the language from the culture. The, they are intertwined. Right, right. Yeah, so and I'm sure it is a cultural thing for sure, but like you said, or, or in this instance, once they were removed from speaking their native language and they're speaking English, it opened the door for them to be able to wow. confront yeah, I'll, a, a I'll senior person. i that book. It might open my eyes to th- concepts that I've got concerning cultures that I have never been able to put in words yet. Yeah, right. And that's one small snippet. There's a lot of things that have nothing to do with cultures within that world as well. So even from that component, you probably want to look into something else directed to that. I, I enjoyed the book. I thought it was a great book, but it just a small snippet of it was around culture. But yeah, <clears throat> the mission work itself, how did that come to be? Well, I, I grew up as a Christian in the L- Lutheran, uh, our Lutheran circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, you know, that's the, the Bible tells you that you're supposed to do two things, right? You're supposed to love God and love people. Mm-hmm. So you're looking for opportunities to help people. Sure. You don't shrink, shrink from them and you're going to share his message. Right. And so, um, once again, opportunities presented themselves to me and I didn't shrink back from them. That's all. Okay. Um, and, and, is it, is it double prong? Cause I'm used to even thinking about mission trips being like, Hey, you're going out, you're helping somebody dig a well for their village, or you're doing this, or you're helping a, you know, teach or something like that. Or is it strictly just straight, a religious component? No, uh, helping people is, is what Christ asks us to do. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, um, People have this idea of mission trips, these mm-hmm. short-term mission trips, which are great for high schoolers or maybe college students uh, to enact or or act out their Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what many times that they find themselves doing is they'll go to a poor Mexican village and uh, they'll build a house for somebody, mm-hmm. you know, just cement block house. Well, the person, you know, could have done that themselves. They just needed a little help with maybe buying the roof or mm. something and now they don't have pride in the workmanship they don't have you know they were just given this thing sure. and it's not valued as it would be if if they'd done it themselves you're, you go to a, a a town and you're here to do something good so you want to paint the library yeah you know so we have a bunch of high schoolers running around painting the library and uh you'll find out sometimes that they didn't want their library painted yeah you know but you did it and they're kind of smiling because you're the rich Americans showing up to paint their library and they kind of all smile and walk around and look at you painting their library, mm-hmm. but they didn't want it painted. Right. Uh, you know, it's a, so you have to do what the culture wants you to participate in. Yeah. And sometimes it's not by helping people <clears throat> do things 
that they could do themselves. You never want to do for others what they could do themselves because yeah. you're inside their culture. Uh, you have to um, um, respect that. Sure. Now, what what Christ asks us to do is, is give water uh, to people that are thirsty or give food to people that are hungry. And, uh, um, you know, you, you really have to wonder how much you're helping when you're doing things that they can do themselves yeah, and want to do themselves. So sometimes you can, you know, I, I helped a guy build a house in Sonora. So this is not a black and white issue. And there is not one single answer for any of this. But this guy had, uh, so I'd been coming to this village for six or eight years. And the woman that was always participating in the Bible studies that I was giving came to me after class one, one weekend, one Saturday afternoon. And she said, you know, my husband is struggling. We're trying to build a house. I knew they were in a tar paper shack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd visited them several times. Uh, and uh, my, my husband has made all these adobe bricks and he's building these walls. Mm-hmm. But the rains are coming now. It's in August when the rains come to that part of Sonora. And uh, uh, they're washing away these, these, all these hard work. Uh, can you help us? Mm-hmm. Well, great. Now we've been asked to do something specific. Sure. And so we came back a couple weeks later with uh, sheets of metal for the roof and uh, bags of concrete. And uh, uh, we helped him fortify these walls and put a roof on it. And we even brought electricity in it. And he was one happy guy. Yeah. Because we were helping him do what he wanted to do. Right. And uh, I was able to witness to that guy in a way that I could never have done so outside of that effort. It took yeah. three of us three or four days to do all this. It was a tremendous amount of effort, mm-hmm. but we were able to share the message with one person sure. that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Right. So, right. It's, so there's not a simple answer to this. How do you help people? Right. It's, it's difficult to really help somebody. Yeah, right. The other component of it that I think about, well, I guess let me, before I dive into that, you learning the Spanish language, right? Because a lot of people that go on these ships do not, right? right. Is that the case? So there's a huge cultural, cultural barrel, cultural barrier there for you are you able to overcome that because you know the language oh yeah yeah uh, you know i've got after 15 years i've got people that consider me their friend sure in all these little villages and they will warn me if if i shouldn't be coming uh, on a certain month because the cartels are actively doing harm to people okay i don't even want to get into that because yeah. the harm that they do is horrible sure uh but uh um so it's a relationship I have with these people. It's not like uh, I'm coming in and telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. They tell me what to do. Right. They tell me when to come, uh, when is a good opportunity to come. Of course, they like what we do. We bring school supplies, uh, typically, except we're not this year because of the cartel violence, but typically we bring school supplies to all the kids. We uh, In Christmas, we bring Christmas presents to all these pe- people. We put on a what we call a posada Christmas party in all these villages where they break pinatas and they have cakes and and stuff. But we ask the people to provide all this stuff and we reimburse them uh, for most of it. They, okay, it still costs them something. Sure. And uh, the Christmas presents, of course, they can't. They wouldn't have a Christmas present without it, and it just gives us an opportunity to share the Christmas message with people. Right. Right. We okay. use it. You know, it's not a uh, uh, it's not a ploy or a gimmick. Mm-hmm. People know why we're there, and but it gives an opportunity for people to congregate. Sure, sure. And has that been a pretty uh, powerful thing, like those experiences? 
Yeah, we uh, in December typically we will reach fifteen hundred people. Yeah. That wouldn't hear the message of Christ otherwise, wouldn't know about Christmas. Right. Right. Even though they're they're strongly Catholic on a very it's a it's a facade. It's they consider themselves uh, part of this Catholic Church, but they don't hear the message. Sure. It, you know. Okay. It's a cultural thing. It's not a religious thing. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. So again, thinking back to all the adventures, it's it, it's surprising and not surprising at the same time to hear you say how much you don't think about this stuff. No, no, I'm saying like you go on the trip and you're not that overwhelmed with thinking about, hey, what's coming up next or whatever else. To me, that's unreal because it just, again, testament to how consistent that's been in your entire life. Could you imagine a life without it, without those adventures? Is that, yeah, what would that look like? I mean, uh, well, what... at some point you'd wake up and you go, life has passed me by. Yeah. Uh, which is okay too, because as a Christian, you know, it's not about this life. It's about the next. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yet, um, you have a spirit within you that wants to, uh, wit, uh, to experience things. Right. And some, for some people, that's reading a good book. I understand that. We're all different. Sure. Um, uh, so I'm not going to try to detract from someone who doesn't like to be cold and wet and hungry sure. as they're floating down some river. Right. Uh, right. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so people, we're all different. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely not taking away from anybody else. I'm just saying for you personally, I, I don't think it would have been... Well, I don't know how you word it, but for you, the adventure lifestyle that you've lived is the best kind of lifestyle that you could have lived. Probably, I think. Fits who you are, fits what you thrive in, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, back in college here, uh, when I was going to school at Michigan Tech, uh, there there had used to be, a couple years before I got there, mm-hmm. a skydiving club. Hmm. And so they had disbanded. They had left three three uh, parachutes in a locker. They had $100 in a bank account. Uh, and uh, the group had completely disbanded. I had hmm. no idea who was in the group before me. There was no minutes that I could find except this information about this bank account and, uh, and these three parachutes in this locker. So I said, hey, we're going to get this parachute uh, uh, skydiving club back together. Yeah. And so... Pretty soon, I was president of the Michigan Technological University Skydiving Club, and we're—I uh, had a group of people traveling down to Amro, Wisconsin. That was the closest jump center in those days. Huh. And we went to jump school, and we jumped out of an airplane, and that was fun. And so we went back several times. Two hundred—I forget the exact number—but more than two hundred people got their first jump with our club. Huh. And I ran it for two years, and then I left school, and we left the parachutes back in some locker, and probably $200 in a bank account and we all left. (laughs) I don't know what's happened since then. Right, right. So thinking about that message that you just said about, okay, that the next life is what's more important, right? But at the same time, you want to have a fulfilling life here and not let life pass you by. Did you think about that from like, uh, you hear, uh, is it, and people I talk about all the time or I've heard it all the time, but is it Thoreau, Henry, Henry David Thoreau that said most men live lives of quiet desperation? I think is how he worded it. Uh, just living a, yeah, a, to- a totally comfort zone life and never getting outside of that is how I view that. Yeah. 
So I, I know a lot of really uh, people with really strong character okay. that have uh, typically people with strong character, the ones I've met, because I work with my hands all the time, I build stuff. I'm building fence for three, four goats I've got now. Yeah. You know, crazy stuff. Right. Why do you want to have goats? Yeah. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's for the grandkids. You know, they, they love them, but it takes my time to, to any rate, getting way off subject there. Yeah. But uh, a lot of people with very strong character uh, uh, working in the trades or... Um, I've met a few like that in the financial sector, um, and th- th- adventures like this are not something that they want to do, even dream of. Yeah, uh, you know they've raised their families. They're, uh, you know, soccer, hockey, whatever, whatever the kids are in. It's all great. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of the day, they feel like they've lived a fulfilling life. Sure, they provided for their family. They've uh, had ad- adventures on on a scale of I guess you'd rate them at smaller or, yeah. uh, I don't know, easier. Sure. What? Less involved. Yeah. But uh, they don't feel like they've missed anything. Yeah. It's just some of us with this crazy uh, glint in our eye yeah. that have to do something beyond that. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't remember if I got the, the name of the quote, right. But that general gist, but again, I do, I do walk that same balance of, like you said, is it doesn't take away from anybody who is different. Right. But I think there is a thing where I could say, I for sure have that glint in my eye. Like I, I talk about it all the time. I would love to, I, I want to do the Pacific crest trail hike from the Mexican border to the Canadian border. It'd be unbelievable. I think about it all the time. I talk about it as much as I can. Well, within reason. I mean, it's just the thing that it's just, I would love to do that. And it doesn't, I'm not doing it, but I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not bad if you're not like that, but also I think challenging somebody to say, Hey, step outside of that, go be cold and wet and hungry for a bit and see what that feels like and see who you become after that. I think there's some pretty big benefit that even if you aren't, at least if you don't believe you're the type of person to drive towards that, if you experience it in hindsight, I think you'll, you'll realize the benefit and, and, and search for that. Or if you are the type of person to seek it, but you're not doing it, push yourself to make it happen. I think you're making a good point. Well, in my life, one adventure has led to the next. Yeah. You know, you you have one little challenge that you're successful at, and success is important, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you set out for an adventure and it's not successful, uh, like on one of my first trips up to Alaska, the bears ate half of our gear, half of our food, uh, destroyed one raft, uh, but we were able to make a go of it, repair the other raft, and continued the trip. Uh, that was in Juneau, Alaska, and my good friend uh, Sean from New Mexico, him and I, just two of us did that. And, uh, you know, um, we made it, but everybody in Juneau, Alaska was talking about the two guys from <laughs> down south that came up there, and yeah, the bears are eating all their stuff, and they yeah. barely made it out of there alive. And right. <laughs> Yeah. For me, it's been on a small scale compared to what you've done, right? And, and it's not a competition, right? And, and I've got a lot of years, whatever else, but... Uh, I'm thinking I've talked about this before. My adventure was graduate high school on a Friday. Me and my friend Carl went to North Dakota on a Monday and, and just, we were cowboys heading West. Right. Uh, and since then it's been hunts out there. I want to go to Alaska. Last fall, we just did a big loop out West with my wife and kids. I want to do some of these hikes and take my kids along with it on a backpacking realm. Um, you know, uh, talk to cousin Tom about flying in, doing some mule deer hunts out in some remote, remote areas, stuff like that. 
it is that it is just that that success breeds that next thing but also again going through those struggles and being in those moments where you're like you know this isn't that fun why on earth did i do this and i'm not doing this again and you hit your truck you're five minutes down the road you're like i can't wait till next year you know it's i don't know there's something about it that i think i do agree everybody doesn't have to go for it but there's a certain segment of people that should and they would benefit from it and i think everybody to some extent would benefit from being cold wet and hungry sometimes But at the moment, it doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do. Sure. It's afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, it's more fun to talk about it afterwards than yeah. it was to do. <laughs> yeah. Again, just had that conversation with John, who I mentioned earlier. He's like, it's it's about the experiences that when you're 85 sitting on a hospital bed, you can look back and say, man, remember that time we did that? You know, it's, yeah. Well, I think when, I, when I'm, in, if I make it to 85, I'll be sitting there going, man, I'm glad I don't have to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> eventually you get to the point where you can let yourself relax eh? yeah but i think too i'm curious to get your perspective on this is okay you talk you're getting goats you're building fences you're doing this right you're doing this mission work still does that sustain you again i i i talked to you about i asked you about giving life right and you said no the trip coming up in two years doesn't give you life but i think living that kind of a lifestyle where you're continuously engaged in this hey I'm, i've got goats I'm, I'm building a fence i'm doing this to me, that keeps you young. Is there, is there truth to that? Well, I'm sure there is some truth to that someplace. Uh, it just, I guess because of little successes with various things, you just decide that, uh, you know, I can build a fence. Yeah. I can uh, build a small barn. But, uh, you know, I'm having a contractor come in, a good friend, and he's adding on to my barn. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing it. Sure. I'm one guy by myself. I'm 68 years old. There's limits. Right. And right. Uh, you, I guess you have to have a realistic uh, uh, appraisal of yourself, too, in all these things. Yeah. Can you float down the Mackenzie? Uh, you know, some people can't. Right. Right. Uh, you know, map reading or... Um, and you got to have friends. Yeah. Uh, you can't do this stuff by yourself. Right. So if you don't have for some reason, the kind of friends that want to do something like this, you can't do it on your own. Right, right. Like I said, I've tried, I've, well, walked across Michigan. I was successful there as a 16-year-old. Yeah. And I've done two solo kayaking trips out of uh, Juneau, Alaska, because I couldn't get anybody to go with me on those. Right. And, uh, and uh, at the, I don't, I don't know why I did the one, and, uh, you know, you're, you spend a lot of time talking to yourself. Mm-hmm. But people go on solo backpacking trips a lot. You know, yeah. there's a lot of people that do that. It's just that when you're in Alaska and you got your, you know, I took a, you don't have a lot of room for stuff, so I took a pistol grip 12-gauge shotgun. I thought that was going to protect me from the bears. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd never shot the thing. And so I took it on these two trips because it was small. And uh, and I figured it's 12-gauge shotgun. It's going to work, right? Put slugs in it. And... Uh, uh, a couple of years later, I took it out. Well, let's see see how this thing shoots. I couldn't hit anything with it. Hmm. It's a pistol grip. Right. You know, uh, you got to have a stock. Yeah. You got to be able to look at sights. Right. Or you cannot shoot the doggone thing. Yeah. And I would have been as completely helpless against a uh, brown bear trying to defend myself with his shotgun. Yeah. And uh, it's a good thing I didn't have to use it. Right. But mentally, you're okay because you yeah, got it there, that's right? right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but have you read the uh, Into the Wild book 
the about the boy who uh the the 18 19 year old or i guess he was 22 or something eventually uh grew up in a pretty successful family but behind the scenes it was pretty abusive uh and he had everything paid for college whatever else is this ring a bell have you read this anyways uh had everything paid for it's a book i've talked about quite a bit but anyways had everything paid for college cars this that he was going on to be a engineer or whatever it was sold everything headed west uh worked some odd jobs eventually there, all working up to this grand trip going up to alaska and uh ended up at a bus there's a famous bus i think they even removed it um, but ended up at a bus somewhere within sight of Denali, either in the park or whatever it was. Anyways, lived there for quite a while. Ended up uh, trying to cross back the river that he had crossed going into there initially. Like he, had, he went to it in a low time. Eventually wanted to get out of there, went to cross, and now it was high to high river. Couldn't get out, went back to the bus, ended up passing away. Speculation whether it was starvation oh, or he yeah. ate, I have ate the wrong that. thing. Anyways, the last note, at least in the movie, and I'm pretty sure in the book, and I believe this is real. I'd have to go back and look. The last note, and I'll probably mess up the the, the exact quote, but either, either way, it was happiness is best shared or experiences are best shared. I think it's happiness is best shared. Is that what you're alluding to as well on top of the safety side of things? Is is being able to share those experiences with people is, is a better experience versus being alone? There's just a lot of stories, especially in Alaska, where uh, the, the territory is so vast, the mountains are so tall, the uh, rivers are so wide and so cold mm-hmm. that there's lots of stories of particularly young men who have perished, yeah. uh, you know, trying to cross one more stream and they die of hypothermia. Right. Um, uh, they run out of energy. Uh, you can only walk so far in a set of snowshoes. Yeah. Uh, Et cetera, et cetera. Right. That if you have someone with you, uh, it success and uh, not getting hurt as is much easier attained. Sure. Yeah. Uh, by yourself, there's a lot of things that don't. Uh, you know, you hurt your leg. Right. Now, what are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's just it's always better to have more than one person. Yeah. And, but did you find that to be true? Like your, were your trips with your friends much more enjoyable and you got a lot more out of them than, than a solo trip? Well, the kind of people that go on these trips are all very much individuals, right? Yeah. And uh, there's a couple of them that I still communicate all, all the time with. Yeah. And when we do get together on those, even if we haven't seen each other for 10 years, you always have that thing in common. Yeah. Uh, that, trip in, that trip in common, that experience is... is it, what, it binds you together. Right. But uh, um, I can see uh, some of what this author is, is alluding to, but uh, uh, not completely. Okay. It's, so you, you re- did really enjoy the solo trips that you had been on. It wasn't like the, the uh, you, you left it saying, boy, this isn't fun without no, friends to have shared it, it with. It, it's just the, the, the challenges are greater. I remember, so... I'm, I had kayaked across, I'd looked up on the map and I'd found this um, uh, place where you could cross uh, a small portion of land to get to another area in the ocean. Everything in southeast Alaska is typically saltwater. Right. A portage. There was a portage on the map, just got a little dotted line. Yeah. You know, and you go, okay, well, somebody else has put this on the map. There's a portage there. So I kayak over to this place. I've been kayaking two days to get there. Uh, I'm by myself crossing, uh, at one point I had to cross seven miles of uh, open ocean. There was a tiny island halfway across, but uh, 
you know, when you go kayaking, you can go two miles an hour mm-hmm. sustained. That's all. So it takes you a long time to go seven miles. I think it was actually 14 miles across. Is that right? Yeah, it took me seven hours. Okay. Because halfway was this rock. So it's like you're all day long and uh, trying to keep the energy up. I put uh, a pile of gorp in a bag right in front of me mm-hmm. and my bottle of water and I would paddle. I'd count out 50 strokes, take a little bit of gorp, throw it in your mouth, count out 50 more strokes, take a little water. And, you know, what a way to live. You know, this you cannot call this fun. Right, right. <laughs> And so I finally get all the way across. There was one little town, a little uh, remote, mostly Indian village that I crossed, very small, 20, 30 homes. And I went all the way back in this inlet, uh, and I find where the, this path is. And now I'm realizing this path is a portage because it's a brown bear path. Oh, sure. Uh, the, bear, the bears have made this path. Right. So... It's the tag alders and the willow brush is, is forming a canopy over this thing. In order to walk down it, I've got to walk hunched over. I've got my sawed-off little pistol grip shotgun, you know, and I'm dragging my kayak behind me. Mm-hmm. And I'm going down this, and right in front of me are these big pancake-sized <laughs> brown bear tracks that yeah. I'm following in the mud, just plop, plop, plop. And something about a brown bear, or all bears but you really see it with brown bears up in Alaska. They step in the same place every time. Hmm. Their paws over, you know, for hundreds of years, they will walk in the same spot. Hmm. So every place where the, where the bears, there's a depression. Mm-hmm. And you can see this along the shoreline. You see it, these little depressions every once in a while. It's just a characteristic of brown bears. Hmm. And so I'm following this plop, plop, plop through the, through the brush going... This is really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I get to the other side, not seeing anything. And now I'm in the, uh, I think it's Tenneke Inlet, not far from Tenneke Springs, which I ended up in a day and a half later, I think. And so I'm getting back in my kayak. I went, whoa, I don't want to do that again. You know, didn't see anything. It's just all in your mind, right? Right. But you know the bears are right there someplace. Yeah. And they're big. I mean, they look like volkswagen beetles yeah you know uh, when you see one in the woods anyway so i so what am i going to spend the night on tonight well where am i going to camp well i found this tiny little island it wasn't 50 feet square i don't think maybe one tree in it and i found room to put up my tent and it's uh 20 or 30 yards from the from the shoreline yeah and i go I'm safe now, right right and but years later i saw a brown bear swim across a big inlet they don't care. They can swim as well as they can walk. Yeah. You know, if they smell something on that island 20 or 30 yards out, it'd take them two minutes to get there. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so you were mentally safe on the island with your unshootable shotgun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. The I'm curious about this. Cause I've talked about this. A lot of times I'll, 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 I'll mention something in a book that I read a while ago and I, I question the the memory that I have. Anyways, the memory that I have about Into the Wild and th- you were talking about uh, young men that have perished. In this book, he makes a quick case about people who have perished and he doesn't think that the actual gentleman himself that passed away was being negligent. But anyways, one of the stories was a guy got flew up to a remote lake up in Alaska. He's living there for the summer, somehow forgot to schedule his flight back or initially, or somehow there's a miscommunication there. There's nobody coming. Anyways, he realized, Hey, I'm spending the winter here, but shortly before winter, he, a, a plane flies above 
And he's so excited. He goes around out there. And in my memory, I believe the book said he threw his hands up in the air or whatever he did. He like so excited to see the plane. Plane flew over, did a loop, took off. And he's like, what on earth? You know, goes back inside, sees a pamphlet for ground communication to airplanes and found out whatever he did, told the plane that, hey, I'm okay. I don't need anything. Keep moving. I guess that's crazy. But also, is that true? Do you know, is it the hands in the air or what's the signal to a, is that outdated or is that a current thing? Or can you touch on that? I don't, I don't know uh, exactly what those hand signals are. I, what we would do when I would fly uh, hunters out and drop them off, uh, if they wanted to be picked up early, we'd have them put a blue tarp out. Okay. Everybody had blue tarps. Those tarps are ubiquitous, right? Yeah. You can, you know, Walmart, you can buy them all for, I don't know what they are, 10, 20 bucks anymore. Yeah. But everybody's always have those things. And we always told them, Stake a stake a tarp out. We know that you want want to get picked up, or you want your moose. You got a moose down. You want us to come get the moose, mm-hmm. or uh, you know. Um, so that's all I know. Sure. Okay. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, the people that grow up in Alaska seem to take a lot of chances with cold. Okay. And I just remember staying at the at a motel in Juneau once on a different trip, and that same place. Where I was talking to you before our podcast about uh, bears had eaten up one of my rafts. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or is that, any rate, uh, he had tried to swim right across that same place, and it's not any bigger than the Yatnagan River, and he didn't make it. I don't know. Just too cold. Huh. And then uh, um, I talked to his dad. This was two or three years after after the event, but that's just one story of issues in alaska because it's just so remote there's nobody to help you yeah it's kind of like being in sonora where you can't trust the police Mm -hmm. you get in trouble in sonora mexico there's nobody to help you right uh and the people that i know in the villages would be afraid to help me because if the cartel's after me you know they don't want to die yeah so it's uh you know it's something so you got to bring your friends with you yeah Right. No, we went, uh, when I was around 20 or so, me and seven friends went down to Costa Rica. Uh, we only had our first night planned. We were there for two weeks, I think. From there, it was just, I mean, you call it backpacking, but just taking a bus to this town or that town or whatever. And you, that was a culture shock. You learned quick. This is not your your safe place, right? Yep. Uh, we were totally fine. There was no issues. I mean, there's tons of other people, but either way, we went to a lot of these small villages where you just, you could tell this was not, if, if you were there by yourself and you got into trouble, there's nothing you can do about it, right? Yeah. 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 So that was, uh, you've seen that firsthand, eh? a lot of that kind of stuff where it just, you understand like this, this is all up to me. Yeah. Yep. And you know, and then if you are in a, in a bad situation and you get hurt, you know, something minor, right? you get a, you know, something wrong with your foot. You can't walk mm-hmm. or you can't walk fast. You know, you can barely walk. Uh, so that's why it's always good to have somebody with you. Right. Right. Yeah. You might, you think you're strong and independent and you can handle any, any problem that comes up. Well, you can't. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Is there, uh, are there other big adventures that you've been on? Because I, I just want to ask you that, that this last question, unless you can think of anything that I should have asked you, but is there any other big trips that we missed? Uh, big adventures. I, I just, I, I like thinking, hearing and exploring those. Well, all the flying adventures that I had in Alaska are so many stories that, uh, you know, and the thing of it is, 
what what does someone else want to hear about? You sure. Know, I know what I think is important and the stories that I like to tell. Right. You know, and uh, but uh, there's so many other stories. You know, er, every trip is a is another story, of course. Right. But uh, yeah, low visibility, whiteout conditions. Uh, um, the you know, out of all the flying that I've done, the military flying, uh, flying the Harrier for the for the Marines. Airline travel, there's a couple close calls in the airlines also that people probably don't want to hear about. Mm-hmm. But uh, the the toughest situation that I'd ever been in was up in Alaska in a little Super Cub mm. uh, where I got in whiteout conditions without a a real attitude gyro. I had a, what's called a turn and bank, and you'd have to understand that this thing has got a needle, one needle that points straight up and down, and if when you enter into a turn... It goes to a standard rate. It'll show you a standard rate or half standard rate turn if the airplane is coordinated, if the rudder is right behind you. Okay. And uh, uh, there I am in whiteout with a my friend's son in his Super Cub on my wing because his dad wanted him to get a little bit more experience. Mm-hmm. We're in whiteout. You can't see the ground. You're not, you can't climb high enough to get... Uh, away from the mountains, uh, and yet, twenty minutes later, we managed to get through all that just by flying on this turn coordinator, which is not—it wouldn't be your first choice about how to keep the wings level. Yeah. And uh, the, so, and we made it back. Right. That was the closest I ever came to not having a good ending to my, to a story. Yeah. And it was after decades of a flight experience and adventures, and uh, you know. And allowed myself to get into a situation that was almost untenable. Yeah. Does it, after an experience like that, does it, uh, does it make you question if you should be doing, should be flying? It's probably a hard question to ask if you're going to be a lifelong pilot, but I'm well, just curious if that I've ever. I've got an attitude gyro in my Super Cub now. Okay. So sure. I, I can fly in those situations a lot, lot easier and a lot better. Sure. And uh, that was, you know, the other part about that story was it was 25 below zero outside. It was wintertime and we we're in a very remote place in Alaska. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it teaches you lessons and, and things that you do within your plane and within your flight process that are uh, hard learned. Yeah, I've got a lot of scars on me, too, from a Super Cub crash in New Mexico okay. where the engine quit up in the mountains. So these things don't always turn out uh, without problems. Yeah. Can you get into that? What was that? Yep. Um so I had just bought this Super Cub. I had owned it for one month. You yeah. know, when I was up in the mountains uh, uh, of New Mexico, I was by myself in the airplane. Uh, a friend and I were hunting, um, and we didn't get an elk. Mm-hmm. And I was flying back home because I had to go back to work. So I t- took off from this uh, little clearing that they use sometimes for fighting forest fires in the, in the summertime. So it was... It wasn't small. It was a big clearing. Mm-hmm. And I took off and the engine started acting up right away. Hmm. And uh, I had no place to land. It's nothing but these tall ponderosa pine trees that are a foot and a half in diameter, two feet in diameter, and 60 feet tall. And so you can't get back down to the ground to land without hitting these trees. And, uh, you know, trying to troubleshoot the airplane, switch tanks, look at the magnetos, trying to figure out, you know, why this airplane's not climbing. In fact, the airspeed is is, is uh, decreasing, and uh, eventually hit the ground, 
uh, and uh, my head went through the windshield, which is hard to do. Yeah. Uh, but you hit hard enough, and your body stretches, and the airplane shrinks, and uh, and uh, the worst part of it was the airplane blew up afterwards, just yeah. like they do in the movies. Right. Uh, so I was inside this huge fireball uh, because of all the gasoline I had in the in the airplane. Everything blew, it burst and broke, and uh, climbed out of the out of the side of the airplane through the door that still worked after wrenching my foot out from underneath the rudder pedals while I was on fire. And I fall down in the dirt. And uh, then I tried to roll and put the fire out on me because I had gasoline on me too. Mm-hmm. And uh, that didn't work. I quickly, within, I mean, a tenth of a second, I just went face down in the dirt and uh, waited two seconds, rolled over my back and noticed that the fire had gone out on the front of part of mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. So I laid down with my back in the dirt and waited two seconds. I sat up, and the airplane's really close. So it's only 20 feet away. So the heat was tremendous that I could still feel from that big burning, but, uh, all that gasoline on fire. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I noticed that it was still, uh, my left knee was still on fire. So I took my two hands and put out that fire on my left knee. And then I looked up and my head was still on fire. So I put out the, with my hands, put out the fire on my head which was probably my hair burning or something that's still at that point. Yeah. And then I tried to get up and walk away from that huge hot fire and my legs collapsed because they were broken. And I rolled down the side of the mountain, you know, another 50 yards or maybe even a hundred yards. Uh, and, uh, lay there. I kicked, kicked my legs around as broke as they were to get my head higher on the slope than my feet because I wanted to stay conscious, yeah. uh, for self-preservation purposes, you know, and because uh, the woods were about to catch on fire. And uh, I looked up at that airplane burning up there and I said, just, I was exhausted. Like I'd f- played two games of football, just completely worn out, broken legs, broken left arm. Uh, my nose and bottom lip had been cut off and uh, uh, 20% third degree burns later noted in the hospitals. Uh, and I looked up at that airplane burn. And I said, that's it. No more hunting and fishing and little airplanes for me. From now on, it's South Sea Islands and Pina Coladas for this dude. Mm-hmm. I said that. Right. It's almost like it's a poem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, of course, I healed up and I continued to have adventures, but uh, that was that was a close call. Unreal. That's crazy. It took me so, five months to heal up from that. Yeah. When you hit the ground, you're, I mean, like you picture in the movie, a, a, a movie of a plane crash, like trees ripping by you and, and that, or how did that? No, the airplane, uh, so it was, I was flying so slow trying to find a clearing amongst these trees mm-hmm. that I was just above a stall with not much engine producing power. It wasn't producing much power. And I stalled it over the top of this one last dead tree that I was trying to get over the top of because there was a small clearing on the other side. I'd push the nose over the airplane as it stalled, trying to get flying speed back. And then before I hit the ground, I was pulling back on the stick, trying to get the nose to rotate so there'd be some semblance of a landing. Well, I was so slow that the nose wouldn't move. Yeah. At least in the amount of time I gave it. And I hit about 30 degrees nose down with whatever speed I had. And just the airplane just bounced, just nose down, bang, bang. And luckily the engine didn't, come into my lap right because airplanes in that situation sometimes crinkle mm-hmm. and then you get 
really bad broken legs and, and things. Uh, so at any rate, I was able to get myself out of it. Yeah. I wasn't trapped. Right, right. So, but, and you started the story, you were with a friend, is that right you said? Well, he was watching me take off. Okay. So he got to the crash site within a couple of minutes. Yeah, because he heard it all happen or what? Oh, yeah. He he saw the flames and smoke coming up. And he was yelling uh, at the fire. He he showed up at the, yelling, Kramer, Kramer, you know, because he thought I was in the fireball. Right. And no, I was... 50 yards or whatever I was away from it, maybe 100 yards because he couldn't see. Yeah, probably 100 yards yeah. where I'd rolled to. And I just raised up my hand and said, down here, William. <laughs> what did he do with that? Just... Oh, he came down there and, he, you know, I didn't feel good, of course. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to feel better. So I said, William, William, help me sit up. So he put his hand on my back and helped me sit up. And I go, oh, that doesn't work. Help me lay down. Yeah. So I laid back down. And I go, oh, that doesn't work either. So help me sit back up. So, you know, so he's just, and then I go, William, I'm really thirsty. Yeah. And so he got any water, so he gave me his canteen without a bottom lip. Yeah. The water just pours down your chin. You can't drink. And uh, so he says, just a minute. So he ran off to go get a rusty can that he had seen, and he filled that with water, and then it would go from corner of your mouth to corner of your mouth, and I could drink some water. Yeah. So uh, just interesting times. Right, right. Oh. Did it take a while to like overcome that afterwards? Did that? Yeah, I was uh, afraid of flying uh, low over trees for a long time. Okay. And I still don't relax yeah. to this day when I'm doing it. Right. Because that's got to be a pretty traumatic event, right? To go yeah, through that. that I mean, pretty traumatic. Yeah. My poor wife uh, and my daughter had to put up with me all broken up for a while, too. Yeah. It wasn't easy for them. Right. Right. So that's when your adventures get out of control. Yeah. But a fluke, right? Did you ever figure out what the... Yeah, the uh, the FAA took the engine from the uh, wreck, and after I was standing up and, with, and walking with a cane, uh, I was there witnessing the teardown of the engine. Mm-hmm. And what they found was that the carburetor was all gunked up. The mechanic that owned the airplane before I got it had... Miss uh, incorrectly assembled the carburetor together, and then and the float. It's like an old tractor, right? Mm-hmm. This, this old technology, but the float in the carburetor wasn't free to move like it should. Sure, he had pinched uh, between two halves of the carburetor, pinched uh, the um, hinge of the float. Right. Okay. And so it didn't articulate on that hinge properly. Yeah. And so the carburetor. The engine stopped running or was decreased in power because it wasn't getting all the gas it needed. Okay. Oh, crazy. I'd only owned the airplane a month, so if I had a, you know, and I'd noticed a couple times that it didn't produce all the power it should have. Yeah. And I should have just put it in the hangar and got a, got, I wasn't a certified airplane mechanic at that time and uh, got somebody else to tear apart that engine and look for the problem. Yeah. Yeah. But not me. Right. Keep pushing it, eh? Yeah. Well, no, it's, uh, I mean, that's crazy to hear about to even think of going through that with broken legs and the, the airplane blowing up on you and uh, unbelievable. So is the guy that uh, is, whose adventures are go, watching his kids play soccer or hockey or something uh, at a big disadvantage here? No, you can overdo adventures too. Yeah, for sure. But I've said this many, many times is I'd rather flirt with that edge 
than not, right? And again, it doesn't matter what anybody else wants. And I'm just saying, me personally, I think there's a huge, I don't know, it just, to me, that's what gives you life. That's everything. It's flirting with that edge of what's too far and not too far. Yeah. It doesn't sound sane, does it? No, right. I think it's, I think it's something built within you that you can't stop from day one, right? Uh, yeah, I, I really think so. Yeah, why did the early adventurers do the things that they did, like Lewis and Clark when they explored the United States and right. uh, people that went to Antarctica and South America and, you know, the first people, in the English, that went all over Africa. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, they were going to p- places that people lived. Was Afri- yeah, Africa was full of Africans. Sure. Uh, it's not like they were off into the, uh, the wilderness that no one had explored before. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's funny how we do this, right? We, we think we're the first ones there. Right, right. And again, I talked about the uh, romantic side. There's a lot of times when I am hunting, I make it back to this far back canyon or something like that in this little random hole. And I'm like, I'm the first person that's ever been here. But it's probably the 30th person that year or something. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. But in your head, you make it into that. So it's, yeah, I don't know. But what makes you, yeah, what makes the, yeah, the human race do that? I mean, that's a... Uh, I think that's the answer, or the, that's the question that needs an answer. Yeah, right. So you had mentioned a marine story. Can you talk so, about that? So, yes, a friend of mine said this is the story that I needed to share with people because he thinks this is uh, quite the story. Okay. So I was in the Marines flying Harriers, and a silly thing here, doing something by myself. I was on my way up. I was the cruise book editor of our detachment, and we were off a ship, uh, uh, and now we're in Okinawa, Japan for uh, six months. So uh, I flew up to Japan and then flew another leg over to Korea, South Korea, by myself in a Harrier. Harrier only holds one person. It's a little fighter jet that takes off and lands vertically. They still got them in the service today, but they've got the B model. I flew the old A model, which was faster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, they made all kinds of enhancements for the B model. It doesn't fly as fast anymore. But uh, anyway, the A model is really neat little airplane. And uh, uh, so I'd gone up, did my business in South Korea, take, uh, took off again next day, flew back down to Yukuni, Japan, uh, picked up a load of gas. Uh, I had a friend there, so I called him for just a few minutes. He was the duty officer that night. And so he couldn't really visit with me. So I took off then, uh, and it was late. This is by, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night. There's no way I should have been flying that light that night. But you're in the Marines, right? You can handle any weather. Yeah. Nothing matters. And all you got is a radio to, to uh, do communications with. Because in those days, we did what we called a ground uh, GCA, ground-controlled approach where you had to have a radio mm-hmm. to communicate with the ground control guy who's watching you on radar, and he would talk you down to the runway. Hmm. He would tell you, you'd pick up a certain rate of descent, and he'd tell you if you're above glide slope or below glide slope, and if you need to turn left or right, uh, he would give you all that guidance, and we were good at it. And uh, we knew about how to fly the airplane to, to make all this happen. So you, just, you had to have that radio. Mm-hmm. That radio was essential. Without that radio, you couldn't land in the weather. And we only had one radio. It's not like you had a backup and one generator on this airplane. So if the generator quit, the radio wouldn't last long Mm because the battery would only last 30 minutes. So all this and this this battery that had a 30-minute backup also supplied the attitude gyro. Hmm. So you couldn't even keep the airplane flying 
without the attitude gyro. You had to know which way was up and which way was down. Mm -hmm. So all this was dependent on this generator that had a bad history. The hmm. airplane was designed with two generators, but one of the generators on the left side, I think because the vibration failed all the time, so the Marine Corps decided, ah, oh, we fly these things with one generator. Mm -hmm. uh, so at any rate, a lot of decisions that were ahead of this uh, event. So I took off, I'm flying up through the weather, 10 o'clock at night, so everything's black. Uh, the weather was solid up to about 10 or 12,000 feet. And above that was clear. So I was up there, 35,000 feet, heading south to Okinawa. I don't know how many miles it is anymore. 600, 800, you know, miles uh, across the ocean down to the island of Okinawa. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm up at 35,000 feet. I'd only been there a few minutes, and I get a generator light. Hmm. Generator's quitting. I tried to reset it, wouldn't reset. So I still heading south. I made a radio communication to the... Uh, Japanese controllers that was controlling the airways up there. I said, uh, I'd like to declare an emergency, you know, whatever, Tokyo Center, I'd like to declare an emergency. I've got a generator failure. I need to limit my communications, and I need to turn immediately back to Iwakuni. Mm -hmm. Oh, magic one one. I'm going to imitate their language, but, you know, their ability to speak English, but this is how it sounded. Mm -hmm. Oh, magic one one. If you uh, repeat all after emergency, port, please. And so, so I repeated it one more time. I said, this is my last transmission. I need to turn around and conserve this battery and get back to Iwakuni. Oh, magic 1-1. One, one. That was our call sign. It was magic. Mm -hmm. Magic 1-1. One, one. Repeat all after emergency. Oh, over. So heck with him. I turned the airplane around. I'm heading back north. And uh, no reason to talk to him anymore. This wasn't going to help at all. Right. And uh, so I'm flying north. And uh, uh, I had figured out how about how far because all your navigation equipment's gone too which isn't much uh but you could fly from uh tacan to tacan which is a ground uh, station that emits a signal that you can home in on and that's how we would navigate mm -hmm. so i'm flying north and uh you know just blackness out there but gyro's working and it's i can see the stars above there's no moon and so i'm heading north so how am i going to get down to Iwakuni you know it's solid overcast mm -hmm. got weather and there's mountains I mean big mountains in Japan everywhere uh, and uh, so as I'm thinking about this I'll try one more time so I pushed I switched up Iwakuni approach control talked to a marine fellow marine pushed the button and said uh, you know Iwakuni approach control this is magic one one I got a, got a uh, electrical failure I need a no, no, no gyro approach and nothing hmm couldn't, didn't get a response. I didn't think the radio was working. So now what do I do? Well, I'm going to fly north 20 minutes and turn right and fly 15 minutes uh, at right angles. That should put me east of Japan. I'm going to let down over the ocean. I'm going to get underneath this weather. I'm going to turn back around and fly in towards uh, Japan uh, underneath the weather. Mm -hmm. Well, that might work in the daytime. It's not going to work at nighttime. You can't see the island coming up underneath an overcast. It's all blackness down there. Right. But I didn't have another plan. Yeah. So as I'm flying, there's one little hole in the clouds. I could look down and I see some city lights down there. So I go, okay, well, I'm going to remember that. It's back over here. Well, I don't know how I was going to find that again, you know, but I was running out of ideas quickly. So I went 20 minutes, 15 minutes, started letting down. Well, I'm letting down, letting down, letting down, letting down. 
and I know there's mountains around here someplace. And I get down to 5,000 feet and I go, that's it, I can't take it anymore. I added full power, climbed back up on top of the clouds and I turned back around looking for that stovepipe hole mm -hmm. in that city. So I get over there and I find it again, which is almost unbelievable. I find that little hole over that town and it's such a small little hole. I do this tight little circle going through the clouds several times, but I get down over the city. And in America, every city has got a runway. Yeah. Every town's got a runway and they got lights on them, flashing, rotating beacons. You can find these things. This city in Japan did not have an airport. Hmm. There was nothing down there. And at one point as I'm flying back and forth across the city, can't talk to anybody. And uh, I'm looking at this one big parking lot and I'm in a Harrier, right? I can land vertically. But when you try to land vertically over asphalt, you blow up big pieces of asphalt. I mean, it's tremendous. You would overturn cars. You know, you'd destroy your airplane in, in doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, big deal. I wanted to live at that point. Right. But uh, as I'm flying back underneath that stovepipe hole, I see an anti-collision light go by. Just two flashes. Huh. I cobbed the power, flew up on top, chased down that, that uh, airplane that, that with the anti-collision light, and uh, we have nozzles. So you can come at something with several hundred knots of closure and stop almost immediately by throwing those nozzles out. I come to a stop on his wing. I'm looking at this airplane. It's a Convair 580, the kind that uh, um, Republic used to fly up here, the twin-engine turboprop thing that, uh, you know, uh, the Convair 580 used mm -hmm. to be a standard for smaller uh, um, city service. And uh, so I'm on this wing, and I'm looking at the co-pilot. I'm on the right side of the airplane, so I see the co-pilot sitting there, and he's just staring straight ahead. Mm. And, of course, I don't have any lights on the airplane. They had a generator failure. Right. I got a flashlight, so I'm waving my flashlight at the airplane, and I'm going, oh, this ain't going to work. And uh, I've got the position light from the uh, wingtip just a couple feet to my left. We could fly in formation all the time, you know, mm -hmm. close to other airplanes. We did that all the time. And, uh, and I'm watching the flight attendant pass, go down the aisle, passing out coffees with her little cart. And I'm looking at the businessman sitting in the overwing exit right there reading his newspaper. And I'm going, hey, somebody look out the window. You can't look out the window. Right. He sees that at night. Uh, you know, all you see is the glare mm -hmm. of the windows. So I settled down. I go, well, Japan's not that big. And I had the huge 300-gallon uh, drop tanks on this airplane. I could still fly for a couple hours, which is unusual in a Harrier. I had lots of gas. So I'm going, well, any place this guy goes, I can go too. Yeah. I just fly in formation down to the runway. He doesn't even have to know I'm there, and I'll take separation and finally land behind him. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got a plan. And so I'm flying around. Minutes go by, minutes go by, maybe 10, 15 minutes. And all of a sudden, my radio comes alive and says, there's real... Uh, Quiet voice says, Magic 1-1, this is the Okuni approach control. If you read Squawk Ident. Well, I can't Squawk Ident. My transponder's not working. So uh, I'm, uh, I, I don't say a thing. I just keep on flying. I just ignore it uh, because I don't think I got any tr ability to transmit anymore. And so uh, another five minutes go by, and I hear him again. Uh, Magic 1-1, if you read Squawk Ident, this is the Okuni approach control. And I go... So I tried it. This is Magic 1-1. I've had a generator failure. I'm in the wing of this Convair 580 heading north. I need a no-gyro approach to full-stop landing at Iokuni. Let go. And he says, oh, okay, uh, Magic, I got a possible on you on that Convair, 
or on that airliner. I don't think he knew it was a Convair. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, turn, turn right 30 degrees for radar identification. And I pushed the button. I said, no gyro. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. turn, st- start your right turn. Okay, he timed it. He tells you when to stop your turn. Mm-hmm. You just have to do a standard rate. So he says, okay, I got you. Turn right, descend to this altitude. Turn right left, descend to this altitude. And after 10 or 15 minutes of, uh, of being controlled with my radio still working, I broke out. There was Iwi Kuni, the huge runway in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I came in and landed. Never so glad to be on the ground in all my life. Taxied over to the parking area. And my buddy, who was the duty officer, as I shut the airplane down, pulled the canopy back. He pulls his Jeep over to the side of the airplane. I step out of the airplane into the Jeep. I didn't even have to stand on the ground. Yeah. He had pulled the, airpl- the Jeep underneath the wing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I went into uh, hooting and hollering and filling out the, uh, the reports afterwards. Right. <laughs> How did it work that your radio started working again? Or what was that? I th- you know, batteries have a way, if you let them rest for a while. Sure, okay. They will regain a little bit of their power or, you know. Yeah. And that's what happened. Okay. Crazy. So how close were you then? You said you're going to try to land in this parking lot. How far out were you? I mean, were you... Oh, I was... Well, I was probably 800, 1,000 feet over the top of this parking lot doing a tight circle at 250 knots or so, yeah. which is pretty slow for a military fighter. Mm-hmm. And uh, doing a turn over there, looking down at it, going, well, that parking lot looks awfully inviting. Mm-hmm. I could do it. Right. But boy, am I going to cause a lot of trouble. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, another 30 seconds go by and you would have landed at that point before? No, it, it would have taken me, you know, I had so much gas. I was going to spend at least an hour thinking about it. Oh, sure. Really, really calculating yeah, it. I, yeah, had, right. I had, I don't know, what, two and a half hours of gas on that airplane when I took off yeah. initially. Maybe more. Huh. I, yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe even three and a half hours of gas. I yeah. had a lot of gas. Yeah. I was so heavy. Right. Still, uh, that yeah, okay, that makes sense. But still, just to even be considering that and yeah. then see the light through the hole in the clouds yeah. and yeah, crazy. Yeah. But fun to hear about. Again, John, thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. This is a pleasure telling these stories. Yeah. We'll see you again. <laughs> hey, guys. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have and you feel so inclined, share this podcast with your friends. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen and give us some feedback with a review. Until next time, thank you.